to have this fellow Rourke. In fact, I told him so. In fact, he's coming over tomorrow afternoon to sign the contract, and now, do you really think it will look like a feather boa? Listen, Joel, she said, her teeth set tight together. Can you have lunch with me tomorrow? She met Joel Sutton in the vast, deserted dining room of a distinguished hotel. There were few solitary guests among the white tables, so that each stood out, the empty table serving as an elegant setting that proclaimed the guest's exclusiveness. Joel Sutton smiled broadly. He had never escorted a woman as decorative as Dominique. You know, Joel, she said, facing him across a table, her voice quiet, set, unsmiling. It was a brilliant idea, you're choosing Rourke. Oh, do you think so? I think so. You'll have a building that will be beautiful, like an anthem, a building that will take your breath away, also your tenants. A hundred years from now they will write about you in history and search for your grave in Potter's Field. Good heavens, Dominique, what are you talking about? About your building, about the kind of building that Rourke will design for you. It will be a great building, Joel. You mean good? I don't mean good. I mean great. It's not the same thing. No, Joel, no. It's not the same thing. I don't like this great stuff. No, you don't. I didn't think you would. Then what do you want with Rourke? You want a building that won't shock anybody, a building that will be folksy and comfortable and safe, like the old parlor back home that smells of clam chowder, a building that everybody will like, everybody and anybody. It's very uncomfortable to be a hero, Joel, and you don't have the figure for it. Well, of course I want a building that people will like. What do you think I'm putting it up for? For my health? No, Joel. Nor for your soul. You mean, Rourke's no good? She sat straight and stiff, as if all her muscles were drawn tight against pain. But her eyes were heavy, half-closed, as if a hand were caressing her body. She said, do you see many buildings that he's done? Do you see many people hiring him? There are six million people in the city of New York. Six million people can't be wrong. Can they? Of course not. Of course. But I thought, Enright, you're not Enright, Joel. For one thing, he doesn't smile so much. Then you see, Enright wouldn't have asked my opinion. You did. That's what I like you for. Do you really like me, Dominique? Didn't you know that you've always been one of my great favorites? I... I've always trusted you. I'll take your word any time. What do you really think I should do? It's simple. You want the best that money can buy. Of what money can buy. You want a building that will be what it deserves to be. You want an architect whom other people have employed so that you can show them that you're just as good as they are. That's right. That's exactly right. Look, Dominique, you've hardly touched your food. I'm not hungry. Well, what architect would you recommend? Think, Joel. Who is there at the moment that everybody's talking about? Who gets the pick of all commissions? Who makes the most money for himself and his clients? Who's young and famous and safe and popular? Why, I guess... I guess Peter Keating. Yes, Joel. Peter Keating. 
I'm so sorry, Mr. Rourke, so terribly sorry, believe me, but after all, I'm not in business for my health. Not for my health, nor for my soul. That is, I mean, well, I'm sure you can understand my position, and it's not that I have anything against you, quite the contrary. I think you're a great architect. You see, that's just the trouble. Greatness is fine, but it's not practical. That's the trouble, Mr. Rourke, not practical. And after all, you must admit that Mr. Keating has much the better name, and he's got that, that, popular touch which you haven't been able to achieve. It disturbed Mr. Sutton that Rourke did not protest. He wished Rourke would try to argue. Then he could bring forth the unanswerable justification which Dominique had taught him a few hours ago. But Rourke said nothing. He had merely inclined his head when he heard the decision. Mr. Sutton wanted desperately to utter the justifications, but it seemed pointless to try to convince a man who seemed convinced. Still, Mr. Sutton loved people, and did not want to hurt anyone. As a matter of fact, Mr. Rourke, I'm not alone in this decision. As a matter of fact, I did want you. I had decided on you. Honestly, I had, but it was Miss Dominique Francone, whose judgment I value most highly, who convinced me that you were not the right choice for this commission. And she was fair enough to allow me to tell you that she did. He saw Rourke looking at him suddenly. Then he saw the hollows of Rourke's cheeks twisted, as if drawn in deeper, and his mouth open. He was laughing, without sound, but for one sharp intake of breath. What on earth are you laughing at, Mr. Rourke? So Miss Francone wanted you to tell me this. She didn't want me to, why should she? She merely said that I could tell you if I wished. Yes, of course. Which only shows her honesty and that she has good reasons for her convictions, and will stand by them openly. Yes. Well, what's the matter? Nothing, Mr. Sutton. Look, it's not decent to laugh like that. No. His room was half dark around him. A sketch of the Heller house was tacked, unframed, on a long blank wall. It made the room seem emptier, and the wall longer. He did not feel the minutes passing, but he felt time as a solid thing enclosed and kept apart within the room, time clear of all meaning, save the unmoving reality of his body. When he heard the knock at the door, he said, Come in, without rising. Dominique came in. She entered as if she had entered this room before. She wore a black suit of heavy cloth, simple like a child's garment, worn as mere protection, not as ornament. She had a high masculine collar raised to her cheeks, and a hat cutting half her face out of sight. He sat looking at her. She waited to see the derisive smile, but it did not come. The smile seemed implicit in the room itself, in her standing there halfway across that room. She took her hat off like a man entering a house. She pulled it off by the brim with the tips of stiff fingers and held it hanging down at the end of her arm. She waited, her face stern and cold but her smooth, pale hair looked defenseless and humble. She said, You are not surprised to see me. I expected you tonight. She raised her hand, bending her elbow with a tight economy of motion, the bare minimum needed, and flung her hat across to a table. The hat's long flight showed the violence in that controlled jerk of her wrist. He asked, What do you want? She answered, You know what I want, her voice heavy and flat. Yes, but I want to hear you say it. All of it. If you wish. 
Her voice had the sound of efficiency, obeying an order with metallic precision. I want to sleep with you, now, tonight, and at any time you may care to call me. I want your naked body, your skin, your mouth, your hands. I want you, like this, not hysterical with desire, but coldly and consciously, without dignity and without regrets. I want you. I have no self-respect to bargain with me and divide me. I want you. I want you like an animal, or a cat on a fence, or a whore. She spoke on a single level tone, as if she were reciting an austere catechism of faith. She stood without moving, her feet in flat shoes planted apart, her shoulders thrown back, her arms hanging straight at her sides. She looked impersonal, untouched by the words she pronounced, chaste like a young boy. You know that I hate you, Rourke. I hate you for what you are, for wanting you, for having to want you. I'm going to fight you, and I'm going to destroy you. And I tell you this as calmly as I told you that I'm a begging animal. I'm going to pray that you can't be destroyed. I tell you this, too, even though I believe in nothing and have nothing to pray to. But I will fight to block every step you take. I will fight to tear every chance you want away from you. I will hurt you through the only thing that can hurt you, through your work. I will fight to starve you to strangle you on the things you won't be able to reach. I have done it to you today, and that is why I shall sleep with you tonight. He sat deep in his chair, stretched out, his body relaxed and taut in relaxation, a stillness being filled slowly with the violence of future motion. I have hurt you today. I'll do it again. I'll come to you whenever I have beaten you, whenever I know that I have hurt you, and I'll let you own me. I want to be owned not by a lover, but by an adversary who will destroy my victory over him, not with honorable blows, but with the touch of his body on mine. That is what I want of you, Rourke. That is what I am. You wanted to hear it all, you've heard it. What do you wish to say now? Take your clothes off. She stood still for a moment. Two hard spots swelled and grew white under the corners of her mouth. Then she saw a movement in the cloth of his shirt, one jolt of controlled breath. And she smiled in her turn, derisively, as he had always smiled at her. She lifted her two hands to her collar and unfastened the buttons of her jacket, simply, precisely, one after another. She threw the jacket down on the floor. She took off a thin white blouse. And she noticed the tight black gloves on the wrists of her naked arms. She took the gloves off, pulling at each finger in turn. She undressed indifferently, as if she were alone in her own bedroom. Then she looked at him. She stood naked, waiting, feeling the space between them like a pressure against her stomach, knowing that it was torture for him also, and that it was as they both wanted it. Then he got up, he walked to her, and when he held her, her arms rose willingly, and she felt the shape of his body imprinted into the skin on the inside of her arm as it encircled him, his ribs, his armpit, his back, his shoulder blade under her fingers— her mouth on his, in a surrender more violent than her struggle had been. Afterward she lay in bed by his side, under his blanket, looking at his room, and she asked, Rourke, why were you working in that quarry? You know it. Yes, anyone else would have taken a job at an architect's office, and then you'd have no desire at all to destroy me. You understand that? Yes. Keep still, it doesn't matter now. Do you know that the Enright House is the most beautiful building in New York? I know that you know it. Rourke, you worked in that quarry when you had the Enright House in you and many other Enright Houses, 
and you were drilling granite, like a... You're going to weaken in a moment, Dominique, and then you'll regret it tomorrow. Yes. You're very lovely, Dominique. Don't. You're lovely. Rourke, I... I'll still want to destroy you. Do you think I would want you if you didn't? Rourke? You want to hear that again? Part of it? I want you, Dominique. I want you. I want you. I... She stopped. The word on which she stopped, almost audible in her breath. No, he said. Not yet. You won't say that yet. Go to sleep. Here, with you? Here, with me. I'll fix breakfast for you in the morning. Did you know that I fix my own breakfast? You like seeing that, like the work in the quarry. Then you'll go home and think about destroying me. Good night, Dominique. This book is continued on Disc 2. The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand continued. Disc 2 Chapter 8 The blinds raised over the windows of her living room, the lights of the city rising to a black horizon halfway up the glass panes. Dominique sat at her desk, correcting the last sheets of an article, when she heard the doorbell. Guests did not disturb her without warning, and she looked up, the pencil held in mid-air, angry and curious. She heard the steps of the maid in the hall. Then the maid came in, saying, A gentleman to see you, madam. A faint hostility in her voice, explaining that the gentleman had refused to give his name. A man with orange hair, Dominique wanted to ask, but didn't. The pencil jerked stiffly, and she said, Have him come in. Then the door opened. Against the light of the hall she saw a long neck and sloping shoulders, like the silhouette of a bottle. A rich, creamy voice said, Good evening, Dominique. And she recognized Ellsworth Toohey, whom she had never asked to her house. She smiled. She said, Good evening, Ellsworth. I haven't seen you for such a long time. You should have expected me now, don't you think so? He turned to the maid. Quantro, please, if you have it, and I'm sure you do. The maid glanced at Dominique wide-eyed. Dominique nodded silently, and the maid went out, closing the door. Busy, of course, said Tui, glancing at the littered desk. Very becoming, Dominique. Gets results, too. You've been writing much better lately. She let the pencil fall, and threw an arm over the back of her chair, half turning to him, watching him placidly. What do you want, Ellsworth? He did not sit down, but stood examining the place with the unhurried curiosity of an expert. Not bad, Dominique. Just about as I'd expect you to have it. A little cold. You know, I wouldn't have that ice-blue chair over there. Too obvious. Fits in too well. Just what people would expect in just that spot. I'd have it carrot red. An ugly, glaring, outrageous red. Like Mr. Howard Rourke's hair. That's quite en passant, merely a convenient figure of speech, nothing personal at all. Just one touch of the wrong color would make the whole room. The sort of thing that gives a place elegance. Your flower arrangements are nice. The pictures, too. Not bad. All right, Ellsworth, all right. What is it? But don't you know that I've never been here before? Somehow, you've never asked me. I don't know why. He sat down comfortably, resting an ankle on a knee, 
one thin leg stretched horizontally across the other, the full length of a tight gunmetal sock exposed under the trouser cuff, and a patch of skin showing above the sock, bluish-white, with a few black hairs. But then you've been so unsociable. The past tense, my dear, the past tense. Did you say that we haven't seen each other for a long time? That's true. You've been so busy in such an unusual way. Visits, dinners, speakeasies, and giving tea parties. Haven't you? I have. Tea parties? I thought that was tops. This is a good room for parties. Large, plenty of space to stuff people into, particularly if you're not particular whom you stuff it with, and you're not. Not now. What do you serve them? Anchovy paste and minced egg cut out like hearts? Caviar and minced onion cut out like stars. What about the old ladies? Cream cheese and chopped walnuts? In spirals. I'd like to have seen you taking care of things like that. It's wonderful how thoughtful you've become of old ladies, particularly the filthy rich, with sons-in-law in real estate. Though I don't think that's as bad as going to see Knock Me Flat with Commodore Higby, who has false teeth, and a nice vacant lot on the corner of Broadway and Chambers. The maid came in with the tray. Tui took a glass and held it delicately, inhaling, while the maid went out. Will you tell me why the Secret Service Department, I won't ask who, and why the detailed reports on my activities? Dominique said indifferently. You can ask who. Anyone and everyone. Don't you suppose people are talking about Miss Dominique Francone in the role of famous hostess? So suddenly... Miss Dominique Francone as a sort of second Kiki Holcomb, but much better. Oh, much. Much subtler, much abler. And then just think how much more beautiful. It's about time you made some use of that superlative appearance of yours that any woman would cut your throat for. It's still being wasted, of course, if one thinks of form in relation to its proper function. But at least some people are getting some good out of it. Your father, for instance... I'm sure he's delighted with this new life of yours, little Dominique being friendly to people, little Dominique who's become normal at last. He's wrong, of course, but it's nice to make him happy. A few others, too. Me, for instance. Though you'd never do anything just to make me happy. But then, you see, that's my lucky faculty, to extract joy from what was not intended for me at all, in a purely selfless way. You're not answering my question. But I am. You asked why the interest in your activities, and I answer, because they make me happy. Because, look, one could be astonished, though short-sightedly, if I were gathering information on the activities of my enemies, but not to be informed about the actions of my own side. Really, you know, you didn't think I'd be so unskilled a general, and whatever else you might think of me, you've never thought me unskilled. Your side, Ellsworth? Look, Dominique, that's the trouble with your written and spoken style. You use too many question marks. Bad in any case. Particularly bad when unnecessary. Let's drop the quiz technique and just talk. Since we both understand and there aren't any questions to be asked between us, if there were, you'd have thrown me out. Instead, you gave me a very expensive liqueur. He held the rim of the glass under his nose and inhaled with a loose kind of sensual relish, which at a dinner-table would have been equivalent to a loud, lip-smacking, vulgar there, superlatively elegant here, 
over a cut crystal edge pressed to a neat little mustache. All right, she said. Talk. That's what I've been doing, which is considerate of me since you're not ready to talk. Not yet, for a while. Well, let's talk, in a purely contemplative manner, about how interesting it is to see people welcoming you into their midst so eagerly, accepting you, flocking to you. Why is it, do you suppose? They do plenty of snubbing on their own, but just let someone who's snubbed them all their life suddenly break down and turn gregarious, and they all come rolling on their backs with their paws folded for you to rub their bellies. Why? There could be two explanations, I think. The nice one would be that they are generous and wish to honor you with their friendship. Only the nice explanations are never the true ones. The other one is that they know you're degrading yourself by needing them. You're coming down off a pinnacle. Every loneliness is a pinnacle, and they're delighted to drag you down through their friendship. Though, of course, none of them knows it consciously, except yourself. That's why you go through agonies doing it. And you'd never do it for a noble cause. You'd never do it except for the end you've chosen, an end viler than the means, and making the means endurable. You know, Ellsworth, you've said a sentence there you'd never use in your column. Did I? Undoubtedly. I can say a great many things to you that I'd never use in my column. Which one? Every loneliness is a pinnacle. That? Yes, quite right, I wouldn't. You're welcome to it, though it's not too good. Fairly crude. I'll give you better ones some day, if you wish. Sorry, however, that that's all you picked out of my little speech. What did you want me to pick? Well, my two explanations, for instance. There's an interesting question there. What is kinder, to believe the best of people and burden them with a nobility beyond their endurance, or to see them as they are and accept it because it makes them comfortable? Kindness being more important than justice, of course. I don't give a damn, Ellsworth. Not in a mood for abstract speculation, interested only in concrete results. All right. How many commissions have you landed for Peter Keating in the last three months? She rose, walked to the tray which the maid had left, poured herself a drink, and said, Four, raising the glass to her mouth. Then she turned to look at him, standing, glass in hand, and added, And that was the famous Tui technique. Never place your punch at the beginning of a column, nor at the end. Sneak it in where it's least expected. Fill a whole column with drivel, just to get in that one important line. He bowed courteously. Quite. That's why I like to talk to you. It's such a waste to be subtle and vicious with people who don't even know that you're being subtle and vicious. But... The drivel is never accidental, Dominique. Also, I didn't know that the technique of my column was becoming obvious. I will have to think of a new one. Don't bother. They love it. Of course, they'll love anything I write. So it's four. I missed one. I counted three. I can't understand why you had to come here if that's all you wanted to know. You're so fond of Peter Keating, and I'm helping him along beautifully, better than you could. So if you wanted to give me a pep talk about Petey... It wasn't necessary, was it? You're wrong there twice in one sentence, Dominique. One honest error and one lie. The honest error is the assumption that I wish to help Peter Keating. And incidentally, I can help him much better than you can, and I have and will. But that's long-range contemplation. The lie is that I came here to talk about Peter Keating. 
You knew what I came here to talk about when you saw me enter. And, oh, my, you'd allow someone more obnoxious than myself to barge in on you just to talk about that subject. Though I don't know who could be more obnoxious to you than myself at the moment. Peter Keating, she said. He made a grimace, wrinkling his nose. Oh, no, he's not big enough for that. But let's talk about Peter Keating. It's such a convenient coincidence that he happens to be your father's partner. You're merely working your head off to procure commissions for your father. Like a dutiful daughter, nothing more natural. You've done wonders for the firm of Francona and Keating in these last three months. Just by smiling at a few dowagers and wearing stunning models at some of our better gatherings. Wonder what you'd accomplish if you decided to go all the way and sell your matchless body for purposes other than aesthetic contemplation in exchange for commissions for Peter Keating. He paused, she said nothing, and he added, My compliments, Dominique. You've lived up to my best opinion of you, by not being shocked at this. What was that intended for, Ellsworth? Shock value or hint value? Oh, it could have been a number of things. A preliminary feeler, for instance. But, as a matter of fact, it was nothing at all. Just a touch of vulgarity. Also the two-e technique. You know I always advise the wrong touch at the right time. I am essentially such an earnest, single-toned Puritan that I must allow myself another color occasionally to relieve the monotony. Are you, Ellsworth? I wonder what you are, essentially. I don't know. I dare say nobody does, he said pleasantly. Although really there's no mystery about it at all. It's very simple. All things are simple when you reduce them to fundamentals. You'd be surprised if you knew how few fundamentals there are. Only two, perhaps, to explain all of us. It's the untangling, the reducing, that's difficult. That's why people don't like to bother. I don't think they'd like the results, either. I don't mind. I know what I am. Go ahead and say it. I'm just a bitch. Don't fool yourself, my dear. You're much worse than a bitch. You're a saint which shows why saints are dangerous and undesirable. And you? As a matter of fact, I know exactly what I am. That alone can explain a great deal about me. I'm giving you a helpful hint, if you care to use it. You don't, of course. You might, though, in the future. Why should I? You need me, Dominique. You might as well understand me a little. You see, I'm not afraid of being understood. Not by you. I need you? Oh, come on. Show a little courage, too. She sat up and waited coldly, silently. He smiled, obviously with pleasure, making no effort to hide the pleasure. Let's see, he said, studying the ceiling with casual attention. Those commissions you got for Peter Keating. The Chrysan office building was mere nuisance value. Howard Rourke never had a chance at that. The Lindsay home was better. Rourke was definitely considered. I think he would have got it but for you. The Stonebrook clubhouse also, he had a chance at that, which you ruined. He looked at her and chuckled softly. No comments on techniques and punches, Dominique? The smile was like cold grease floating over the fluid sounds of his voice. You slipped up on the Norris country house he got that last week, you know. Well, you can't be a hundred percent successful. After all, the Enright House is a big job. 
It's creating a lot of talk, and quite a few people are beginning to show interest in Mr. Howard Rourke. But you've done remarkably well. My congratulations. Now, don't you think I'm being nice to you? Every artist needs appreciation, and there's nobody to compliment you since nobody knows what you're doing. But Rourke and me, and he won't thank you. On second thought, I don't think Rourke knows what you're doing, and that spoils the fun, doesn't it? She asked, How do you know what I'm doing? Her voice tired. My dear, surely you haven't forgotten that it was I who gave you the idea in the first place. Oh, yes, she said absently. Yes. And now you know why I came here. Now you know what I meant when I spoke about my side. Yes, she said. Of course. This is a pact, my dear, an alliance. Allies never trust each other, but that doesn't spoil their effectiveness. Our motives might be quite opposite. In fact, they are. But it doesn't matter. The result will be the same. It is not necessary to have a noble aim in common. It is necessary only to have a common enemy. We have. Yes, that's why you need me. I've been helpful once. Yes, I can hurt your Mr. Rourke much better than any tea party you'll ever give. What for? Omit the what fors. I don't inquire into yours. All right. Then it's to be understood between us. We are allies in this. She looked at him. She slouched forward, attentive, her face empty. Then she said, We're allies. Fine, my dear. Now listen. Stop mentioning him in your column every other day or so. I know you take vicious cracks at him each time, but it's too much. You're keeping his name in print, and you don't want to do that. Further, you'd better invite me to those parties of yours. There are things I can do which you can't. Another tip. Mr. Gilbert Colton, you know, the California Pottery Coltons, is planning a branch factory in the East. He's thinking of a good modernist. In fact, he's thinking of Mr. Rourke. Don't let Rourke get it. It's a huge job with lots of publicity. Go and invent a new tea sandwich for Mrs. Colton. Do anything you wish. But don't let Rourke get it. She got up, dragged her feet to a table, her arms swinging loosely, and took a cigarette. She lighted it, turned to him, and said indifferently, You can talk very briefly and to the point, when you want to, when I find it necessary. She stood at the window looking out over the city. She said, You've never actually done anything against Rourke. I didn't know you cared quite so much. Oh, my dear, haven't I? You've never mentioned him in print. That, my dear, is what I've done against Mr. Rourke. So far. When did you first hear of him? When I saw drawings of the Heller House. You didn't think I'd miss that, did you? And you? When I saw drawings of the Enright House? Not before. Not before. She smoked in silence. Then she said, without turning to him, Ellsworth, if one of us tried to repeat what we said here tonight, the other would deny it, and it could never be proved. So it doesn't matter if we're sincere with each other, does it? It's quite safe. Why do you hate him? I never said I hated him. She shrugged. As for the rest, he added, 
I think you can answer that yourself. She nodded slowly to the bright little point of her cigarette's reflection on the glass pane. He got up, walked over to her, and stood looking at the lights of the city below them, at the angular shapes of buildings, at the dark walls made translucent by the glow of the windows, as if the walls were only a checkered veil of thin black gauze over a solid mass of radiance. And Ellsworth, too, he said softly, Look at it. A sublime achievement, isn't it? A heroic achievement. Think of the thousands who worked to create this, and of the millions who profit by it. And it is said that but for the spirit of a dozen men here and there down the ages, but for a dozen men, less perhaps, none of this would have been possible. And that might be true. If so, there are again two possible attitudes to take. We can say that these twelve were great benefactors, that we are all fed by the overflow of the magnificent wealth of their spirit, and that we are glad to accept it in gratitude and brotherhood. Or we can say that by the splendor of their achievement, which we can neither equal nor keep, these twelve have shown us what we are, that we do not want the free gifts of their grandeur, that a cave by an oozing swamp and a fire of sticks rubbed together are preferable to skyscrapers and neon lights, if the cave and the sticks are the limit of our own creative capacities. Of the two attitudes, Dominique, which would you call the truly humanitarian one? Because, you see, I'm a humanitarian. After a while, Dominique found it easier to associate with people. She learned to accept self-torture as an endurance test, urged on by the curiosity to discover how much she could endure. She moved through formal receptions, theater parties, dinners, dances, gracious and smiling, a smile that made her face brighter and colder, like the sun on a winter day. She listened emptily to empty words, uttered as if the speaker would be insulted by any sign of enthusiastic interest from his listener, as if oily boredom were the only bond possible between people, the only preservative of their precarious dignity. She nodded to everything and accepted everything. Yes, Mr. Holt, I think Peter Keating is the man of the century. Our century? No, Mr. Inskip, not Howard Rourke. You don't want Howard Rourke. A phony? Of course he's a phony. It takes your sensitive honesty to evaluate the integrity of a man. Nothing much. No, Mr. Inskip, of course Howard Rourke is nothing much. It's all a matter of size and distance. And distance. No, I don't drink very much, Mr. Inskip. I'm glad you like my eyes. Yes, they always look like that when I'm enjoying myself. And it made me so happy to hear you say that Howard Rourke is nothing much. You've met Mr. Rourke, Mrs. Jones? And you didn't like him? Oh, he's the type of man for whom one can feel no compassion. How true. Compassion is a wonderful thing. It's what one feels when one looks at a squashed caterpillar. An elevating experience. One can let oneself go and spread. You know, like taking a girdle off. You don't have to hold your stomach, your heart, or your spirit up when you feel compassion. All you have to do is look down. It's much easier. When you look up, you get a pain in the neck. Compassion is the greatest virtue. It justifies suffering. There's got to be suffering in the world, else how would we be virtuous and feel compassion? Oh, it has an antithesis, but such a hard, demanding one. 
Admiration, Mrs. Jones, admiration. But that takes more than a girdle. So I say that anyone for whom we can't feel sorry is a vicious person, like Howard Rourke. Late at night, often, she came to Rourke's room. She came unannounced, certain of finding him there, and alone. In his room there was no necessity to spare, lie, agree, and erase herself out of being. Here she was free to resist, to see her resistance welcomed by an adversary too strong to fear a contest, strong enough to need it. She found a will granting her the recognition of her own entity, untouched and not to be touched except in clean battle, to win or to be defeated, but to be preserved in victory or defeat, not ground into the meaningless pulp of the impersonal. When they lay in bed together it was, as it had to be, as the nature of the act demanded, an act of violence. It was surrender, made the more complete by the force of their resistance. It was an act of tension, as the great things on earth are things of tension. It was tense as electricity, the force fed on resistance, rushing through wires of metal stretched tight. It was tense as water made into power by the restraining violence of a dam. The touch of his skin against hers was not a caress, but a wave of pain. It became pain by being wanted too much, by releasing in fulfillment all the past hours of desire and denial. It was an act of clenched teeth and hatred. It was the unendurable, the agony, an act of passion, the word born to mean suffering. It was the moment made of hatred, tension, pain, the moment that broke its own elements, inverted them, triumphed, swept into a denial of all suffering, into its antithesis, into ecstasy. She came to his room from a party wearing an evening gown, expensive and fragile like a coating of ice over her body, and she leaned against the wall, feeling the rough plaster under her skin, glancing slowly at every object around her, at the crude kitchen table loaded with sheets of paper, at the steel rulers, at the towels smudged by the black prints of five fingers, at the bare boards of the floor and she let her glance slide down the length of her shining satin down to the small triangle of a silver sandal, thinking of how she would be undressed here. She liked to wander about the room, to throw her gloves down among a litter of pencils, rubber erasers, and rags, to put her small silver bag on a stained, discarded shirt, to snap open the catch of a diamond bracelet and drop it on a plate with the remnant of a sandwich by an unfinished drawing. Rourke she said, standing behind his chair, her arms over his shoulders, her hand under his shirt, fingers spread and pressed flat against his chest. I made Mr. Simons promise his job to Peter Keating today, thirty-five floors and anything he'll wish to make it cost, money no object, just art, free art. She heard the sound of his soft chuckle, but he did not turn to look at her. Only his fingers closed over her wrist, and he pushed her hand farther down under his shirt, pressing it hard against his skin. Then she pulled his head back, and she bent down to cover his mouth with hers. She came in and found a copy of the banner spread out on his table, open at the page bearing Your House by Dominique Francone. Her column contained the line, Howard Rourke is the Marquis de Sade of architecture. He is in love with his buildings. And look at them. She knew that he disliked the banner, 
that he put it there only for her sake, that he watched her noticing it with the half-smile she dreaded on his face. She was angry. She wanted him to read everything she wrote, yet she would have preferred to think that it hurt him enough to make him avoid it. Later, lying across the bed with his mouth on her breast, she looked past the orange tangle of his head at that sheet of newspaper on the table, and he felt her trembling with pleasure. She sat on the floor at his feet, her head pressed to his knees, holding his hand, closing her fist in turn over each of his fingers, closing it tight and letting it slide slowly down the length of his finger, feeling the hard, small stops at the joints. And she asked softly, Rourke, you wanted to get the Colton factory? You wanted it very badly? Yes, very badly, he answered, without smiling and without pain. Then she raised his hand to her lips and held it there for a long time. She got out of bed in the darkness and walked naked across his room to take a cigarette from the table. She bent to the light of a match, her flat stomach rounded faintly in the movement. He said, Light one for me. And she put a cigarette between his lips. Then she wandered through the dark room, smoking, while he lay in bed, propped up on his elbow, watching her. Once she came in and found him working at his table. He said, I've got to finish this. Sit down. Wait. He did not look at her again. She waited silently, huddled in a chair at the farthest end of the room. She watched the straight lines of his eyebrows drawn in concentration, the set of his mouth, the vein beating under the tight skin of his neck, the sharp surgical assurance of his hand. He did not look like an artist. He looked like the quarry worker, like a wrecker demolishing walls, and like a monk. Then she did not want him to stop or glance at her, because she wanted to watch the ascetic purity of his person, the absence of all sensuality, to watch that, and to think of what she remembered. There were nights when he came to her apartment as she came to his, without warning. If she had guests, he said, get rid of them, and walked into the bedroom while she obeyed. They had a silent agreement, understood without mention, never to be seen together. Her bedroom was an exquisite place of glass, and pale ice-green. He liked to come in wearing clothes, stained by a day spent on the construction site. He liked to throw back the covers of her bed, then to sit talking quietly for an hour or two, not looking at the bed, not mentioning her writing or buildings, or the latest commission she had obtained for Peter Keating. The simplicity of being at ease here like this, making the hours more sensual than the moments they delayed. There were evenings when they sat together in her living room, at the huge window high over the city. She liked to see him at that window. He would stand half-turned to her, smoking, looking at the city below. She would move away from him and sit down on the floor in the middle of the room and watch him. Once when he got out of bed, she switched the light on and saw him standing there, naked. She looked at him. Then she said, her voice quiet and desperate with the simple despair of complete sincerity, Rourke, everything I've done all my life is because it's the kind of a world that made you work in a quarry last summer. I know that. He sat down at the foot of the bed. She moved over. She pressed her face against his thigh, curled up, her feet on the pillow, her arm hanging down, letting her palm move slowly up the length of his leg, from the ankle to the knee and back again. She said, 
But of course, if it had been up to me last spring when you were broken, jobless, I would have sent you precisely to that kind of a job, in that particular quarry. I know that too. But maybe you wouldn't have. Maybe you'd have had me as a washroom attendant in the clubhouse of the AGA. Yes, possibly. Put your hand on my back, Rourke. Just hold it there, like that. She lay still, her face buried against his knees, her arm hanging down over the side of the bed, not moving, as if nothing in her were alive but the skin between her shoulder blades under his hand. In the drawing rooms she visited, in the restaurants, in the offices of the AGA, people talked about the dislike of Miss Dominique Francon of the Banner for Howard Rourke, that architectural freak of Roger Enright's. It gave him a sort of scandalous fame. It was said, Rourke, you know the guy Dominique Francon can't stand the guts of. The Francon girl knows her architecture all right, and if she says he's no good, he must be worse than I thought he was. God, but these two must hate each other, though I understand they haven't even met. She liked to hear these things. It pleased her when Athelstan Beasley wrote in his column in the AGA Bulletin, discussing the architecture of medieval castles. To understand the grim ferocity of these structures, we must remember that the wars between feudal lords were a savage business, something like the feud between Miss Dominique Francon and Mr. Howard Rourke. Austin Heller, who had been her friend, spoke to her about it. He was angrier than she had ever seen him. His face lost all the charm of his usual sarcastic poise. What in hell do you think you're doing, Dominique? he snapped. This is the greatest exhibition of journalistic hooliganism I've ever seen swilled out in public print. Why don't you leave that sort of thing to Ellsworth Toohey? Ellsworth is good, isn't he? she said. At least he's had the decency to keep his unsanitary trap shut about Rourke. Though, of course, that too is an indecency. But what's happened to you? Do you realize who and what you're talking about? It was all right when you amused yourself by praising some horrible abortion of Grandpa Holcomb's, or panning the pants off your own father and that pretty butcher's calendar boy that he's got himself for a partner. It didn't matter one way or another. But to bring that same intellectual manner to the appraisal of someone like Rourke... You know, I really thought you had integrity and judgment, if ever given a chance to exercise them. In fact, I thought you were behaving like a tramp, only to emphasize the mediocrity of the saps whose works you had to write about. I didn't think that you were just an irresponsible bitch. You were wrong, she said. Roger Enright entered her office one morning and said without greeting, Get your hat. You're coming to see it with me. Good morning, Roger, she said. To see what? The Enright House. As much of it as we've got put up. Why, certainly, Roger. She smiled, rising. I'd love to see the Enright House. On their way, she asked, What's the matter, Roger? Trying to bribe me? He sat stiffly on the vast gray cushions of his limousine, not looking at her. He answered, I can understand stupid malice. I can understand ignorant malice. I can't understand deliberate rottenness. You are free, of course, to write anything you wish, afterward. But it won't be stupidity, and it won't be ignorance. You overestimate me, Roger. She shrugged and said nothing else for the rest of the ride. They walked together past the wooden fence into the jungle of naked steel and planks that was to be the Enright house. Her high heels stepped lightly over lime-spattered boards, and she walked, leaning back, in careless, insolent elegance. She stopped and looked at the sky held in a frame of steel, 
the sky that seemed more distant than usual, thrust back by the sweeping length of beams. She looked at the steel cages of future projections, at the insolent angles, at the incredible complexity of this shape coming to life as a simple logical whole. A naked skeleton with planes of air to form the walls. A naked skeleton on a cold winter day with a sense of birth and promise, like a bare tree with the first touch of green. Oh, Roger. He looked at her and saw the kind of face one should expect to see in church at Easter. I didn't underestimate either one, he said dryly. Neither you nor the building. Good morning, said a low, hard voice beside them. She was not shocked to see Rourke. She had not heard him approaching, but it would have been unnatural to think of this building without him. She felt that he simply was there, that he had been there from the moment she crossed the outside fence, that this structure was he, in a manner more personal than his body. He stood before them, his hands thrust into the pockets of a loose coat, his hair hatless in the cold. Miss Francone, Mr. Rourke, said Enright. We have met once, she said. At the Holcombs, if Mr. Rourke remembers. Of course, Miss Francone, said Rourke. I wanted Miss Francone to see it, said Enright. Shall I show you around? Rourke asked him. Yes, do, please, she answered first. The three of them walked together through the structure, and the workers stared curiously at Dominique. Rourke explained the layout of future rooms, the system of elevators, the heating plant, the arrangement of windows, as he would have explained it to a contractor's assistant. She asked questions, and he answered. How many cubic feet of space, Mr. Rourke? How many tons of steel? Be careful of these pipes, Miss Francone. Step this way. Enright walked along, his eyes on the ground, looking at nothing. But then he asked, How's it going, Howard? And Rourke smiled, answering, Two days ahead of schedule. And they stood talking about the job, like brothers, forgetting her for a moment, the clanging roar of machines around them drowning out their words. She thought, standing there in the heart of the building, that if she had nothing of him, nothing but his body, here it was, offered to her, the rest of him, to be seen and touched, open to all, the girders and the conduits and the sweeping reaches of space were his, and could not have been anyone else's in the world. His, as his face, as his soul. Here was the shape he had made, and the thing within him which had caused him to make it, the end and the cause together, his motive power eloquent in every line of steel, a man's self, hers for this moment, hers by grace of her seeing it and understanding. Are you tired, Miss Francone? asked Rourke, looking at her face. No, she said. No, not at all. I've been thinking. What kind of plumbing fixtures are you going to use here, Mr. Rourke? A few days later in his room, sitting on the edge of his drafting table, she looked at a newspaper, at her column, and the lines. I have visited the Enright construction site. I wish that in some future air raid... A bomb would blast this house out of existence. It would be a worthy ending. So much better than to see it growing old and soot-stained, degraded by the family photographs, the dirty socks, the cocktail shakers, and the grapefruit rinds of its inhabitants. There is not a person in New York City who should be allowed to live in this building. 
Rourke came to stand beside her, close to her, his legs pressed to her knees, and he looked down at the paper, smiling. You have Roger completely bewildered by this, he said. Has he read it? I was in his office this morning when he read it. At first he called you some names I'd never heard before. Then he said, Wait a moment, and he read it again. He looked up, very puzzled, but not angry at all. And he said, If you read it one way, but on the other hand, what did you say? Nothing. You know, Dominique, I'm very grateful. But when are you going to stop handing me all that extravagant praise? Someone else might see it. And you won't like that. Someone else? You knew that I got it from that first article of yours about the Enright House. You wanted me to get it. But don't you think someone else might understand your way of doing things? Oh, yes, but the effect, for you, will be worse than if they didn't. They'll like you less for it. However, I don't know who will even bother to understand, unless it's... Rourke, what do you think of Ellsworth Toohey? Good God, why should anyone think of Ellsworth Toohey? She liked the rare occasions when she met Rourke at some gathering where Heller or Enright had brought him. She liked the polite, impersonal Miss Francone, pronounced by his voice. She enjoyed the nervous concern of the hostess and her efforts not to let them come together. She knew that the people around them expected some explosion, some shocking sign of hostility, which never came. She did not seek Rourke out, and she did not avoid him. They spoke to each other if they happened to be included in the same group, as they would have spoken to anyone else. It required no effort. It was real and right. It made everything right, even this gathering. She found a deep sense of fitness in the fact that here, among people, they should be strangers, strangers and enemies. She thought these people can think of many things he and I are to each other, except what we are. It made the moments she remembered greater, the moments not touched by the sight of others, by the words of others, not even by their knowledge. She thought it has no existence here, except in me and in him. She felt a sense of possession, such as she could feel nowhere else. She could never own him as she owned him in a room among strangers, when she seldom looked in his direction. If she glanced at him across the room and saw him in conversation with blank, indifferent faces, she turned away, unconcerned. If the faces were hostile, she watched for a second, pleased. She was angry when she saw a smile, a sign of warmth or approval on a face turned to him. It was not jealousy. She did not care whether the face was a man's or a woman's. She resented the approval as an impertinence. She was tortured by peculiar things, by the street where he lived, by the doorstep of his house, by the cars that turned the corner of his block. She resented the cars in particular. She wished she could make them drive on to the next street. She looked at the garbage pail by the stoop next door, and she wondered whether it had stood there when he passed by on his way to his office this morning whether he had looked at that crumpled cigarette package on top. Once, in the lobby of his house, she saw a man stepping out of the elevator. She was shocked for a second. She had always felt as if he were the only inhabitant of that house. When she rode up in the small self-operating elevator, she stood leaning against the wall, her arms crossed over her breast, her hands hugging her shoulders, feeling huddled and intimate, as in a stall under a warm shower. She thought of that while some gentleman was telling her about the latest show on Broadway while Rourke was sipping a cocktail at the other end of the room, while she heard the hostess whispering to somebody, 
My lord, I didn't think Gordon would bring Dominique. I know Austin will be furious at me because of his friend Rourke being here, you know. Later, lying across his bed, her eyes closed, her cheeks flushed, her lips wet, losing the sense of the rules she herself had imposed, losing the sense of her words, she whispered, Rourke, there was a man talking to you out there today, and he was smiling at you, the fool, the terrible fool. Last week he was looking at a pair of movie comedians and loving them. I wanted to tell that man, don't look at him, you'll have no right to want to look at anything else. Don't like him, you'll have to hate the rest of the world. It's like that, you damn fool, one or the other. Not together, not with the same eyes. Don't look at him, don't like him, don't approve. That's what I wanted to tell him. Not you and the rest of it. I can't bear to see that. I can't stand it. Anything to take you away from it, from their world, from all of them. Anything, Rourke. She did not hear herself saying it. She did not see him smiling. She did not recognize the full understanding in his face. She saw only his face close over hers. And she had nothing to hide from him, nothing to keep unstated. Everything was granted, answered, found. Peter Keating was bewildered. Dominique's sudden devotion to his career seemed dazzling, flattering, enormously profitable. Everybody told him so. But there were moments when he did not feel dazzled or flattered. He felt uneasy. He tried to avoid Guy Francon. How did you do it, Peter? How did you do it? Francon would ask. She must be crazy about you. Who'd ever think that Dominique, of all people, would... And who'd think she could? She'd have made me a millionaire if she'd done her stuff five years ago. But then, of course, a father is not the same inspiration as a... Um, he caught an ominous look on Keating's face and changed the end of his sentence to As her man, shall we say. Listen, Guy, Keating began, and stopped, sighing, and muttered, Please, Guy, we mustn't... I know, I know, I know, we mustn't be premature. But hell, Peter, entre nous, isn't it all as public as an engagement? More so, and louder. Then the smile vanished, and Francon's face looked earnest, peaceful, frankly aged, in one of his rare flashes of genuine dignity. And I'm glad, Peter, he said simply. That's what I wanted to happen. I guess I always did love Dominique, after all. It makes me happy. I know I'll be leaving her in good hands. Her and everything else, eventually. Look, old man, will you forgive me? I'm so terribly rushed. Had two hours sleep last night. The Colton factory, you know. Jesus, what a job. Thanks to Dominique. It's a killer, but wait till you see it. Wait till you see the check, too. Isn't she wonderful? Will you tell me why is she doing it? I've asked her, and I can't make head or tail of what she says. She gives me the craziest gibberish. You know how she talks. Oh, well, we should worry, so long as she's doing it. He could not tell Francone that he had no answer. He couldn't admit that he had not seen Dominique alone for months, that she refused to see him. He remembered his last private conversation with her, in the cab on their way from Tui's meeting. He remembered the indifferent calm of her insults to him, the utter contempt of insults delivered without anger. He could have expected anything after that, except to see her turn into his champion, his press agent, almost, his pimp, 
That's what's wrong, he thought, that I can think of words like that when I think about it. He had seen her often since she started on her unrequested campaign. He had been invited to her parties and introduced to his future clients. He had never been allowed a moment alone with her. He had tried to thank her and to question her, but he could not force a conversation she did not want continued, with a curious mob of guests pressing all around them. So he went on smiling blandly, her hand resting casually on the black sleeve of his dinner jacket, her thigh against his as she stood beside him, her pose possessive and intimate, made flagrantly intimate by her air of not noticing it, while she told an admiring circle what she thought of the Cosmos Slotnik building. He heard envious comments from all his friends. He was, he thought bitterly, the only man in New York City who did not think that Dominique Francone was in love with him. But he knew the dangerous instability of her whims, and this was too valuable a whim to disturb. He stayed away from her and sent her flowers. He wrote along and tried not to think of it. The little edge remained, a thin edge of uneasiness. One day he met her by chance in a restaurant. He saw her lunching alone and grasped the opportunity. He walked straight to her table, determined to act like an old friend who remembered nothing but her incredible benevolence. After many bright comments on his luck, he asked, Dominique, why have you been refusing to see me? What should I have wanted to see you for? But good Lord Almighty! That came out involuntarily, with too sharp a sound of long suppressed anger, and he corrected it hastily, smiling. Well, don't you think you owed me a chance to thank you? You've thanked me many times. Yes, but didn't you think we really had to meet alone? Didn't you think that I'd be a little bewildered? I haven't thought of it. Yes, I suppose you could be. Well? Well, what? What is it all about? About fifty thousand dollars by now, I think. You're being nasty. Want me to stop? Oh, no. That is, not, not the commissions. Fine, I won't stop them. You see? What was there for us to talk about? I'm doing things for you, and you're glad to have me do them. So we're in perfect agreement. You do say the funniest things. In perfect agreement. That's sort of a redundancy and an understatement at the same time, isn't it? What else could we be under the circumstances? You wouldn't expect me to object to what you're doing, would you? No, I wouldn't. But agreeing is not the word for what I feel. I'm so terribly grateful to you that I'm simply dizzy. I was bowled over. Don't let me get silly now. I know you don't like that. But I'm so grateful I don't know what to do with myself. Fine, Peter. Now you've thanked me. You see, I've never flattered myself by thinking that you thought very much of my work, or cared, or took any notice. And then you... That's what makes me so happy. And... Dominique? he asked, and his voice jerked a little, because the question was like a hook pulling at a line, long and hidden, and he knew that this was the core of his uneasiness. Do you really think that I'm a great architect? She smiled slowly. She said, Peter, if people heard you asking that, they'd laugh, particularly asking that of me. Yes, I know, but... But do you really mean them? All those things you say about me, they work? Yes, but is that why you picked me? Because you think I'm good? You sell like hotcakes. Isn't that the proof? Yes. No. I mean, in a different way. 
I mean, Dominique, I'd like to hear you say once, just once, that I... Listen, Peter, I'll have to run along in a moment, but before I go, I must tell you that you'll probably hear from Mrs. Lonsdale tomorrow or the next day. Now, remember that she's a prohibitionist, loves dogs, hates women who smoke, and believes in reincarnation. She wants her house to be better than Mrs. Purdy's. Holcomb did Purdy's. So if you tell her that Mrs. Purdy's house looks ostentatious and that true simplicity costs much more money, you'll get along fine. You might discuss Petty Point, too. That's her hobby. He went away, thinking happily about Mrs. Lonsdale's house, and he forgot his question. Later he remembered it resentfully and shrugged and told himself that the best part of Dominique's help was her desire not to see him. As a compensation, he found pleasure in attending the meetings of Tui's Council of American Builders. He did not know why he should think of it as compensation, but he did, and it was comforting. He listened attentively when Gordon L. Prescott made a speech on the meaning of architecture. And thus the intrinsic significance of our craft lies in the philosophical fact that we deal in nothing. We create emptiness through which certain physical bodies are to move. We shall designate them for convenience as humans. By emptiness I mean what is commonly known as rooms. Thus it is only the crass layman who thinks that we put up stone walls. We do nothing of the kind. We put up emptiness, as I have proved. This leads us to a corollary of astronomical importance, to the unconditional acceptance of the premise that absence is superior to presence, that is, to the acceptance of non-acceptance. I shall state this in simpler terms. For the sake of clarity, nothing is superior to something. Thus it is clear that the architect is more than a bricklayer, since the fact of bricks is a secondary illusion anyway. The architect is a metaphysical priest, dealing in basic essentials, who has the courage to face the primal conception of reality as non-reality, since there is nothing, and he creates nothingness. If this sounds like a contradiction, it is not a proof of bad logic, but of a higher logic, the dialectics of all life and art. Should you wish to make the inevitable deductions from this basic conception, you may come to conclusions of vast sociological importance. You may see that a beautiful woman is inferior to a non-beautiful one, that the literate is inferior to the illiterate, that the rich is inferior to the poor and the able to the incompetent. The architect is the concrete illustration of a cosmic paradox. Let us be modest in the vast pride of this realization. Everything else is twaddle. One could not worry about one's value or greatness when listening to this. It made self-respect unnecessary. Keating listened in thick contentment. He glanced at the others. There was an attentive silence in the audience. They all liked it as he liked it. He saw a boy chewing gum, a man cleaning his fingernails with the corner of a match folder, a youth stretched out loutishly. That, too, pleased Keating. It was as if they said, we are glad to listen to the sublime, but it's not necessary to be too damn reverent about the sublime. The Council of American Builders met once a month, and engaged in no tangible activity beyond listening to speeches and sipping an inferior brand of root beer. Its membership did not grow fast, either in quantity or in quality. There were no concrete results achieved. The meetings of the council were held in a huge empty room over a garage on the west side. A long, narrow, unventilated stairway led to a door bearing the council's name. There were folding chairs inside, a table for the chairman, and a wastebasket. The AGA considered the Council of American Builders a silly joke. 
What do you want to waste time on those cranks for? Francone asked Keating in the rose-lit, satin-stuffed rooms of the AGA, wrinkling his nose with fastidious amusement. Damned if I know, Keating answered gaily. I like them. Ellsworth, too, he attended every meeting of the council, but did not speak. He sat in a corner and listened. One night Keating and Tui walked home together after the meeting, down the dark, shabby streets of the west side, and stopped for a cup of coffee at a seedy drugstore. Why not a drugstore? Tui laughed when Keating reminded him of the distinguished restaurants made famous by Tui's patronage. At least no one will recognize us here and bother us. He sent a jet of smoke from his Egyptian cigarette at a faded Coca-Cola sign over their booth. He ordered a sandwich. He nibbled daintily at a slice of pickle, which was not fly-specked, but looked it. And he talked to Keating. He talked at random. What he said did not matter at first. It was his voice, the matchless voice of Ellsworth Toohey. Keating felt as if he were standing in the middle of a vast plain, under the stars, held and owned, in assurance, in security. Kindness, Peter, said the voice softly. Kindness. That is the first commandment, perhaps the only one. That is why I had to pan that new play in my column yesterday. That play lacked essential kindness. We must be kind, Peter, to everybody around us. We must accept and forgive. There is so much to be forgiven in each one of us. If you learn to love everything, the humblest, the least, the meanest, then the meanest in you will be loved. Then we'll find the sense of universal equality, the great peace of brotherhood, a new world, Peter, a beautiful new world. Chapter 9 Ellsworth Monkton Tui was seven years old when he turned the hose upon Johnny Stokes, as Johnny was passing by the Tui lawn, dressed in his best Sunday suit. Johnny had waited for that suit a year and a half his mother being very poor. Ellsworth did not sneak or hide, but committed his act openly, with systematic deliberation. He walked to the tap, turned it on, stood in the middle of the lawn, and directed the hose at Johnny, his aim faultless, with Johnny's mother just a few steps behind him down the street, with his own mother and father and the visiting minister in full view on the Tui porch. Johnny Stokes was a bright kid with dimples and golden curls. People always turned to look at Johnny Stokes. Nobody had ever turned to look at Ellsworth Toohey. The shock and amazement of the grown-ups present were such that nobody rushed to stop Ellsworth for a long moment. He stood bracing his thin little body against the violence of the nozzle jerking in his hands, never allowing it to leave its objective until he felt satisfied. Then he let it drop, the water hissing through the grass, and made two steps toward the porch and stopped, waiting, his head high, delivering himself for punishment. The punishment would have come from Johnny, if Mrs. Stokes had not seized her boy and held him. Ellsworth did not turn to the Stokeses behind him, but said slowly, distinctly, looking at his mother and the minister, Johnny is a dirty bully. He beats up all the boys in school. This was true. The question of punishment became an ethical problem. It was difficult to punish Ellsworth under any circumstances because of his fragile body and delicate health. Besides, it seemed wrong to chastise a boy who had sacrificed himself to avenge injustice, and done it bravely, in the open, ignoring his own physical weakness. Somehow, he looked like a martyr. 
Ellsworth did not say so. He said nothing further, but his mother said it. The minister was inclined to agree with her. Ellsworth was sent to his room without supper. He did not complain. He remained there meekly, refused the food his mother sneaked up to him late at night, disobeying her husband. Mr. Toohey insisted on paying Mrs. Stokes for Johnny's suit. Mrs. Toohey let him do it sullenly. She did not like Mrs. Stokes. Ellsworth's father managed the Boston branch of a national chain of shoe stores. He earned a modest, comfortable salary and owned a modest, comfortable home in an undistinguished suburb of Boston. The secret sorrow of his life was that he did not hit a business of his own, but he was a quiet, conscientious, unimaginative man, and an early marriage had ended all his ambition. Ellsworth's mother was a thin, restless woman who adopted and discarded five religions in nine years. She had delicate features, the kind that made her look beautiful for a few years of her life, at the one period of full flower, never before and never afterward. Ellsworth was her idol. His sister Helen, five years older, was a good-natured, unremarkable girl, not beautiful, but pretty and healthy. She presented no problem. Ellsworth, however, had been born puny in health. His mother adored him from the moment the doctor pronounced him unfit to survive. It made her grow in spiritual stature, to know the extent of her own magnanimity in her love for so uninspiring an object. The bluer and uglier baby Ellsworth looked, the more passionate grew her love for him. She was almost disappointed when he survived without becoming an actual cripple. She took little interest in Helen. There was no martyrdom in loving Helen. The girl was so obviously more deserving of love that it seemed just to deny it to her. Mr. Toohey, for reasons which he could not explain, was not too fond of his son. Ellsworth, however, was the ruler of the household by a tacit voluntary submission of both parents, though his father could never understand the cause of his own share in that submission. In the evenings, under the lamp of the family sitting-room, Mrs. Toohey would begin in a tense, challenging voice, angry and defeated in advance. Horace, I want a bicycle. A bicycle for Ellsworth. All the boys his age have them. Willie Lovett just got a new one the other day. Horace? Horace, I want a bicycle for Ellsworth. Not right now, Mary, Mr. Toohey would answer wearily. Maybe next summer. Just now we can't afford. Mrs. Toohey would argue, her voice rising in jerks toward a shriek. Mother, what for? said Ellsworth, his voice soft, rich, and clear lower than the voices of his parents, yet cutting across them, commanding, strangely persuasive. There's many things we need more than a bicycle. What do you care about, Willie Lovett? I don't like Willie. Willie's a dumbbell. Willie can afford it because his pa's got his own dry goods store. His pa's a show-off. I don't want a bicycle. Every word of this was true, and Ellsworth did not want a bicycle. But Mr. Toohey looked at him strangely wondering what had made him say that. He saw his son's eyes looking at him blankly from behind the small glasses. The eyes were not ostentatiously sweet, not reproachful, not malicious, just blank. Mr. Toohey felt that he should be grateful for his son's understanding, and wished to hell the boy had not mentioned that part about the private store. Ellsworth did not get the bicycle, but he got a polite attention in the house, a respectful solicitude, tender and guilty from his mother, uneasy and suspicious from his father. Mr. Toohey would do anything rather than be forced into a conversation with Ellsworth, 
feeling at the same time foolish and angry at himself for his fear. Horace, I want a new suit, a new suit for Ellsworth. I saw one in a window today, and I've... Mother, I've got four suits. What do I need another one for? I don't want to look silly like Pat Noonan, who changes them every day. That's because his pa's got his own ice cream parlor. Pat stuck up like a girl about his clothes. I don't want to be a sissy. Ellsworth, thought Mrs. Toohey at times, happy and frightened, is going to be a saint. He doesn't care about material things at all, not one bit. This was true. Ellsworth did not care about material things. He was a thin, pale boy with a bad stomach, and his mother had to watch his diet, as well as his tendency to frequent colds in the head. His sonorous voice was astonishing in his puny frame. He sang in the choir, where he had no rivals. At school he was a model pupil. He always knew his lessons, had the neatest copybooks, the cleanest fingernails, loved Sunday school, and preferred reading to athletic games, in which he had no chance. He was not too good at mathematics, which he disliked, but excellent at history, English, civics, and penmanship. Later at psychology and sociology. He studied conscientiously and hard. He was not like Johnny Stokes, who never listened in class, seldom opened a book at home, yet knew everything almost before the teacher had explained it. Learning came to Johnny automatically, as did all things. His able little fists, his healthy body, his startling good looks, his over-exuberant vitality. But Johnny did the shocking and the unexpected. Ellsworth did the expected, better than anyone had ever seen it done. When they came to compositions, Johnny would stun the class by some brilliant display of rebellion. Given the theme of school days, the golden age, Johnny came through with a masterly essay on how he hated school and why. Ellsworth delivered a prose poem on the glory of school days, which was reprinted in a local newspaper. Besides, Ellsworth had Johnny beaten hollow when it came to names and dates. Ellsworth's memory was like a spread of liquid cement. It held anything that fell upon it. Johnny was a shooting geyser. Ellsworth was a sponge. The children called him Elsie Toohey. They usually let him have his way and avoided him when possible, but not openly. They could not figure him out. He was helpful and dependable when they needed assistance with their lessons. He had a sharp wit and could ruin any child by the apt nickname he coined, the kind that hurt. He drew devastating cartoons on fences. He had all the earmarks of a sissy, but somehow he could not be classified as one. He had too much self-assurance and quiet, disturbingly wise contempt for everybody. He was afraid of nothing. He would march right up to the strongest boys in the middle of the street and state, not yell, in a clear voice that carried for blocks, state without anger. No one had ever seen Ellsworth Toohey angry. Johnny Stokes got a patch on his ass. Johnny Stokes lives in a rented flat. Willie Lovett is a dunce. Pat Noonan is a fish-eater. Johnny never gave him a beating, and neither did the other boys, because Ellsworth wore glasses. He could not take part in ball games, and was the only child who boasted about it, instead of feeling frustrated or ashamed like the other boys with substandard bodies. He considered athletics vulgar, and said so. The brain, he said, was mightier than the brawn. He meant it. He had no close personal friends. He was considered impartial and incorruptible. There were two incidents in his childhood, of which his mother was very proud. It happened that the wealthy, popular Willie Lovett gave a birthday party on the same day as Drippy Munn, 
son of a widowed seamstress, a whining boy whose nose was always running. Nobody accepted Drippy's invitation, except the children who were never invited anywhere. Of those asked for both occasions, Ellsworth Toohey was the only one who snubbed Willie Lovett and went to Drippy Munn's party, a miserable affair from which he expected and received no pleasure. Willie Lovett's enemies howled and taunted Willie for months afterward, about being passed up in favor of Drippy Munn. It happened that Pat Noonan offered Ellsworth a bag of jelly beans in exchange for a surreptitious peek at his test paper. Ellsworth took the jelly beans and allowed Pat to copy his test. A week later, Ellsworth marched up to the teacher, laid the jelly beans untouched upon her desk, and confessed his crime without naming the other culprit. All her efforts to extract that name could not budge him. Ellsworth remained silent. He explained only that the guilty boy was one of the best students, and he could not sacrifice the boy's record to the demands of his own conscience. He was the only one punished, kept after school for two hours. Then the teacher had to drop the matter and let the test marks remain as they were. But it threw suspicion on the grades of Johnny Stokes, Pat Noonan, and all the best pupils of the class, except Ellsworth Toohey. Ellsworth was eleven years old when his mother died. Aunt Adeline, his father's maiden sister, came to live with them and run the Tui household. Aunt Adeline was a tall, capable woman to whom the word horse clung in conjunction with the words sense and face. The secret sorrow of her life was that she had never inspired romance. Helen became her immediate favorite. She considered Ellsworth an imp out of hell. But Ellsworth never wavered in his manner of grave courtesy toward Aunt Adeline. He leaped to pick up her handkerchief, to move her chair when they had company, particularly masculine company. He sent her beautiful valentines on the appropriate day, with paper lace, rosebuds, and love poems. He sang Sweet Adeline at the top of his town crier's voice. "'You're a maggot, Elsie,' she told him once. "'You feed on sores.' "'Then I'll never starve,' he answered. After a while they reached a state of armed neutrality. Ellsworth was left to grow up as he pleased. In high school, Ellsworth became a local celebrity, the star orator. For years, the school did not refer to a promising boy as a good speaker, but as a Tui. He won every contest. Afterward, members of the audience spoke about that beautiful boy. They did not remember the sorry little figure with the sunken chest, inadequate legs and glasses. They remembered the voice. He won every debate. He could prove anything. Once, after beating Willie Lovett with the affirmative of the pen is mightier than the sword, he challenged Willie to reverse their positions, took the negative, and won again. Until the age of sixteen, Ellsworth felt himself drawn to the career of a minister. He thought a great deal about religion. He talked about God and the Spirit. He read extensively on the subject. He read more books on the history of the Church than on the substance of faith. He brought his audience to tears in one of his greatest oratorical triumphs with the theme of The Meek Shall Inherit the Earth. At this period, he began to acquire friends. He liked to speak of faith, and he found those who liked to listen. Only he discovered that the bright, the strong, the able boys of his class felt no need of listening, felt no need of him at all. But the suffering and the ill-endowed came to him. Drippy Munn began to follow him about with the silent devotion of a dog. Billy Wilson lost his mother, and came wandering to the Tui house in the evenings to sit with Ellsworth on the porch, listening, shivering once in a while, saying nothing, his eyes wide, dry, and pleading. Skinny Dick's got infantile paralysis, 
and would lie in bed watching the street corner beyond the window waiting for Ellsworth. Rusty Hazelton failed to pass in his grades and sat for many hours crying, with Ellsworth's cold, steady hand on his shoulder. It was never clear whether they all discovered Ellsworth or Ellsworth discovered them. It seemed to work more like a law of nature. As nature allows no vacuum, so Payne and Ellsworth Toohey drew each other. His rich, beautiful voice said to them, It's good to suffer. Don't complain. Bear, bow, accept, and be grateful that God has made you suffer, for this makes you better than the people who are laughing and happy. If you don't understand this, don't try to understand. Everything bad comes from the mind, because the mind asks too many questions. It is blessed to believe, not to understand. So if you didn't get passing grades, be glad of it. It means that you are better than the smart boys who think too much and too easily. People said it was touching the way Ellsworth's friends clung to him. After they had taken him for a while, they could not do without him. It was like a drug habit. Ellsworth was fifteen when he astonished the Bible class teacher by an odd question. The teacher had been elaborating upon the text, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Ellsworth asked, then, in order to be truly wealthy, a man should collect souls? The teacher was about to ask him what the hell did he mean, but controlled himself and asked, What did he mean? Ellsworth would not elucidate. At the age of sixteen, Ellsworth lost interest in religion. He discovered socialism. His transition shocked Aunt Adeline. In the first place, it is blasphemous and drivel, she said. In the second place, it doesn't make sense. I'm surprised at you, Elsie. The poor in spirit that was fine, but just the poor, that doesn't sound respectable at all. Besides, it's not like you. You're not cut out to make big trouble, only little trouble. Something's crazy somewhere, Elsie. It just don't fit. It's not like you at all. In the first place, my dear aunt, he answered, don't call me Elsie. In the second place, you're wrong. The change seemed to be good for Ellsworth. He did not become an aggressive zealot. He became gentler, quieter, milder. He became more attentively considerate of people. It was as if something had taken the nervous edges off his personality and given him new confidence. Those around him began to like him. Aunt Adeline stopped worrying. Nothing actual seemed to come of his preoccupation with revolutionary theories. He joined no political party. He read a great deal and he attended a few dubious meetings where he spoke once or twice, not too well, but mostly sat in a corner listening, watching, thinking. Ellsworth went to Harvard. His mother had willed her life insurance for that specific purpose. At Harvard, his scholastic record was superlative. He majored in history. Aunt Adeline had expected to see him go in for economics and sociology. She half feared that he would end up as a social worker. He didn't. He became absorbed in literature and the fine arts. It baffled her a little. It was a new trait in him. He had never shown any particular tendency in that direction. You're not the arty kind, Elsie, she stated. It don't fit. You're wrong, Auntie, he said. Ellsworth's relations with his fellow students were the most unusual of his achievements at Harvard. He made himself accepted. Among the proud young descendants of proud old names, he did not hide the fact of his humble background. He exaggerated it. He did not tell them that his father was the manager of a shoe store. He said that his father was a shoe cobbler. 
He said it without defiance, bitterness, or proletarian arrogance. He said it as if it were a joke on him, and, if one looked closely into his smile, on them. He acted like a snob, not a flagrant snob, but a natural innocent one who tries very hard not to be snobbish. He was polite, not in the manner of one seeking favor, but in the manner of one granting it. His attitude was contagious. People did not question the reasons of his superiority. They took it for granted that such reasons existed. It became amusing at first to accept Monk Tui. Then it became distinctive and progressive. If this was a victory, Ellsworth did not seem conscious of it as such. He did not seem to care. He moved among all these unformed youths with the assurance of a man who has a plan, a long-range plan set in every detail, and who can spare nothing but amusement for the small incidentals of his way. His smile had a secret closed quality, the smile of a shopkeeper counting profits, even though nothing in particular seemed to be happening. He did not talk about God and the nobility of suffering. He talked about the masses. He proved to a rapt audience at bull sessions lasting till dawn that religion bred selfishness. Because, he stated, religion overemphasized the importance of the individual spirit. Religion preached nothing but a single concern, the salvation of one's own soul. To achieve virtue in the absolute sense, said Ellsworth Tuey, a man must be willing to take the foulest crimes upon his soul for the sake of his brothers. To mortify the flesh is nothing. To mortify the soul is the only act of virtue. So you think you love the broad mass of mankind? You know nothing of love. You give two bucks to a strike fund, and you think you've done your duty? You poor fools! No gift is worth a damn unless it's the most precious thing you've got. Give your soul. To a lie? Yes, if others believe it. To deceit? Yes, if others need it. To treachery, knavery, crime? Yes! To whatever it is that seems lowest and vilest in your eyes. Only when you can feel contempt for your own priceless little ego, only then can you achieve the true broad peace of selflessness, the merging of your spirit with the vast collective spirit of mankind. There is no room for the love of others within the tight, crowded miser's hole of a private ego. Be empty in order to be filled. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. The opium peddlers of the church had something there, but they didn't know what they had. Self-abnegation? Yes, my friends, by all means. But one doesn't abnegate by keeping oneself pure and proud of its own purity. The sacrifice that includes the destruction of one's soul. Ah, but what am I talking about? This is only for heroes to grasp and to achieve. He did not have much success among the poor boys working their way through college. He acquired a sizable following among the young heirs, the second and third generation millionaires. He offered them an achievement of which they felt capable. He graduated with high honors. When he came to New York, he was preceded by a small private fame. A few trickles of rumor had seeped down from Harvard about an unusual person named Ellsworth Tuey. A few people, among the extreme intellectuals and the extremely wealthy, heard these rumors and probably forgot what they had heard, but remembered the name. It remained in their minds with a vague connotation of such things as brilliance, courage, idealism. People began to ooze toward Ellsworth Tuey, the right kind of people, those who soon found him to be a spiritual necessity. The other kind did not come. There seemed to be an instinct about it. 
When someone commented on the loyalty of Tui's following, he had no title, program, or organization, but somehow his circle was called a following from the first. An envious rival remarked, Tui draws the sticky kind. You know the two things that stick best, mud and glue. Tui overheard it and shrugged, smiling, and said, Oh, come, come, there are many more. Adhesive plaster, leeches, taffy, wet socks, rubber girdles, chewing gum, and tapioca pudding. Moving away, he added over his shoulder, without smiling, and cement. He took his master's degree from a New York university and wrote a thesis on collective patterns in the city architecture of the 14th century. He earned his living in a busy, varied, scattered way. No one could keep track of all his activities. He held the post of vocational advisor at the university. He reviewed books, plays, art exhibitions. He wrote articles, gave a few lectures to small, obscure audiences. Certain tendencies were apparent in his work. When reviewing books, he leaned toward novels about the soil rather than the city, about the average rather than the gifted, about the sick rather than the healthy. There was a special glow in his writing when he referred to stories about little people. Human was his favorite adjective. He preferred character study to action and description to character study. He preferred novels without a plot and, above all, novels without a hero. He was considered outstanding as a vocational advisor. His tiny office at the university became an informal confessional where students brought all their problems, academic as well as personal. He was willing to discuss, with the same gentle, earnest concentration, the choice of classes or love affairs, or, most particularly, the selection of a future career. When consulted on love affairs, Tui counseled surrender, if it concerned a romance with a charming little pushover, good for a few drunken parties, let us be modern, and renunciation if it concerned a deep emotional passion, let us be grown up. When a boy came to confess a feeling of shame after some unsavory sexual experience, Tui told him to snap out of it. It was damn good for you. There are two things we must get rid of early in life, a feeling of personal superiority and an exaggerated reverence for the sexual act. People noticed that Ellsworth Tui seldom let a boy pursue the career he had chosen. No, I wouldn't go in for law if I were you. You're much too tense and passionate about it. A hysterical devotion to one's career does not make for happiness or success. It is wiser to select a profession about which you can be calm, sane, and matter-of-fact. Yes, even if you hate it. It makes for down-to-earthness. No, I wouldn't advise you to continue with your music. The fact that it comes to you so easily is a sure sign that your talent is only a superficial one. That's just the trouble. That you love it. Don't you think that sounds like a childish reason? Give it up. Yes, even if it hurts like hell. No, I'm sorry, I would so much like to say that I approve, but I don't. When you thought of architecture, it was a purely selfish choice, wasn't it? Have you considered anything but your own egotistical satisfaction? Yet a man's career concerns all society. The question of where you could be most useful to your fellow men comes first. It's not what you can get out of society. It's what you can give. And where opportunities for service are concerned, there's no endeavor comparable to that of a surgeon. Think it over. After leaving college, some of his protégés did quite well. Others failed. Only one committed suicide. 
It was said that Ellsworth Toohey had exercised a beneficent influence upon them, for they never forgot him. They came to consult him on many things years later. They wrote him, they clung to him. They were like machines without a self-starter that had to be cranked up by an outside hand. He was never too busy to give them his full attention. His life was crowded, public, and impersonal as a city square. The friend of humanity had no single private friend. People came to him. He came close to no one. He accepted all. His affection was golden, smooth, and even like a great expanse of sand. There was no wind of discrimination to raise dunes. The sand lay still, and the sun stood high. Out of his meager income he donated money to many organizations. He was never known to have loaned a dollar to an individual. He never asked his rich friends to assist a person in need, but he obtained from them large sums and endowments for charitable institutions, for settlement houses, recreation centers, homes for fallen girls, schools for defective children. He served on the boards of all these institutions without salary. A great many philanthropic undertakings and radical publications run by all sorts of people had a single connecting link among them, one common denominator, the name of Ellsworth M. Toohey on their stationery. He was a sort of one-man holding company of altruism. Women played no part in his life. Sex had never interested him. His furtive, infrequent urges drew him to the young, slim, full-bosomed, brainless girls, the giggling little waitresses, the lisping manicurists, the less efficient stenographers, the kind who wore pink or orchid dresses and little hats on the back of their heads with gobs of blonde curls in front. He was indifferent to women of intellect. He contended that the family was a bourgeois institution, but he made no issue of it and did not crusade for free love. The subject of sex bored him. There was, he felt, too much fuss made over the damn thing. It was of no importance. There were too many weightier problems in the world. The years passed, with each busy day of his life like a small, neat coin dropped patiently into a gigantic slot machine, without a glance at the combination of symbols, without return. Gradually, one of his many activities began to stand out among the others. He became known as an eminent critic of architecture. He wrote about buildings for three successive magazines that limped on noisily for a few years and failed, one after the other. New voices, new pathways, new horizons. The fourth, New Frontiers, survived. Ellsworth Toohey was the only thing salvaged from the successive wrecks. Architectural criticism seemed to be a neglected field of endeavor. Few people bothered to write about buildings, fewer to read. Toohey acquired a reputation and an unofficial monopoly. The better magazines began calling upon him whenever they needed anything connected with architecture. In the year 1921, a small change occurred in Toohey's private life. His niece, Catherine Halsey, the daughter of his sister, Helen, came to live with him. His father had long since died, and Aunt Adeline had vanished into the obscure poverty of some small town. At the death of Catherine's parents, there was no one else to take care of her. Toohey had not intended to keep her in his own home, but when she stepped off the train in New York, her plain little face looked beautiful for a moment, as if the future were opening before her and its glow were already upon her forehead, as if she were eager and proud and ready to meet it. It was one of those rare moments when the humblest person knows suddenly what it means to feel as the center of the universe, and is made beautiful by the knowledge, and the world, in the eyes of witnesses, looks like a better place for having such a center.
Ellsworth, too, he saw this, and decided that Catherine would remain with him. In the year 1925 came Sermons in Stone and Fame. Ellsworth Toohey became a fashion. Intellectual hostesses fought over him. Some people disliked him and laughed at him. But there was little satisfaction in laughing at Ellsworth Toohey because he was always first to make the most outrageous remarks about himself. Once at a party, a smug, boorish businessman listened to Toohey's earnest social theories for a while and said complacently, well, I wouldn't know much about all that intellectual stuff. I play the stock market. I, said Tui, play the stock market of the spirit, and I sell short. The most important consequence of Sermons in Stone was Tui's contract to write a daily column for Gail Winans' New York Banner. The contract came as a surprise to the followers of both sides involved, and at first it made everybody angry. Tui had referred to Winand frequently, and not respectfully. The Winand papers had called Tui every name fit to print. But the Winand papers had no policy, save that of reflecting the greatest prejudices of the greatest number. And this made for an erratic direction, but a recognizable direction nevertheless, toward the inconsistent, the irresponsible, the trite, and the maudlin. The Winand papers stood against privilege and for the common man, but in a respectable manner that could shock nobody. They exposed monopolies when they wished, they supported strikes when they wished, and vice versa. They denounced Wall Street, and they denounced socialism, and they hollered for clean movies, all with the same gusto. They were strident and blatant, and in essence, lifelessly mild. Ellsworth Toohey was a phenomenon much too extreme to fit behind the front page of the banner. But the staff of the banner was as unfastidious as its policy. It included everybody who could please the public or any large section thereof. It was said, Gail Winand is not a pig, he'll eat anything. Ellsworth Toohey was a great success, and the public was suddenly interested in architecture. The banner had no authority on architecture. The banner would get Ellsworth Toohey. It was a simple syllogism. Thus, one small voice came into existence. The banner explained its appearance by announcing, On Monday the banner will present to you a new friend, Ellsworth M. Toohey, whose scintillating book, Sermons in Stone, you have all read and loved. The name of Mr. Toohey stands for the great profession of architecture. He will help you to understand everything you want to know about the wonders of modern building. Watch for one small voice on Monday to appear exclusively in the banner in New York City. The rest of what Mr. Toohey stood for was ignored. Ellsworth Toohey made no announcement or explanation to anyone. He disregarded the friends who cried that he had sold himself. He simply went to work. He devoted one small voice to architecture, once a month. The rest of the time it was the voice of Ellsworth Toohey saying what he wished said, to syndicated millions. Toohey was the only one and employee who had a contract permitting him to write anything he pleased. He had insisted upon it. It was considered a great victory by everybody except Ellsworth Toohey. He realized that it could mean one of two things. Either Wynand had surrendered respectfully to the prestige of his name, or Wynand considered him too contemptible to be worth restraining. One small voice never seemed to say anything dangerously revolutionary, and seldom anything political. It merely preached sentiments with which most people felt in agreement. Unselfishness, brotherhood equality. I'd rather be kind than right. 
Mercy is superior to justice, the shallow-hearted to the contrary notwithstanding. Speaking anatomically, and perhaps otherwise, the heart is our most valuable organ, the brain is a superstition. In spiritual matters, there is a simple infallible test. Everything that proceeds from the ego is evil. Everything that proceeds from love for others is good. Service is the only badge of nobility. I see nothing offensive in the conception of fertilizer as the highest symbol of man's destiny. It is fertilizer that produces wheat and roses. The worst folk song is superior to the best symphony. A man braver than his brothers insults them by implication. Let us aspire to no virtue which cannot be shared. I have yet to see a genius or a hero who, if stuck with a burning match, would feel less pain than his undistinguished average brother. Genius is an exaggeration of dimension. So is elephantiasis. Both may be only a disease. We are all brothers under the skin, and I, for one, would be willing to skin humanity to prove it. In the offices of the banner, Ellsworth Toohey was treated respectfully and left alone. It was whispered that Gail Wynand did not like him, because Wynand was always polite to him. Alva Scarrett unbent to the point of cordiality, but kept a wary distance. There was a silent, watchful equilibrium between Toohey and Scarrett. They understood each other. Toohey made no attempt to approach Wynand in any way. Toohey seemed indifferent to all the men who counted on the banner. He concentrated on the others instead. He organized a club of Wynand employees. It was not a labor union. It was just a club. It met once a month in the library of the banner. It did not concern itself with wages, hours, or working conditions. It had no concrete program at all. People got acquainted, talked, and listened to speeches. Ellsworth, too, he made most of the speeches. He spoke about New Horizons and the press as the voice of the masses. Gail Wynand appeared at a meeting once, entering unexpectedly in the middle of a session. Toohey smiled and invited him to join the club, declaring that he was eligible. Wynand did not join. He sat listening for half an hour, yawned, got up, and left before the meeting was over. Alvis Garrett appreciated the fact that Toohey did not try to reach into his field, into the important matters of policy. As a kind of return courtesy, Scarrett let Toohey recommend new employees when there was a vacancy to fill, particularly if the position was not an important one. As a rule, Scarrett did not care, while Toohey always cared, even when it was only the post of copyboy. Toohey's selections got the jobs. Most of them were young, brash, competent, shifty-eyed, and shook hands limply. They had other things in common, but these were not so apparent. There were several monthly meetings which Toohey attended regularly, the meetings of the Council of American Builders, the Council of American Writers, the Council of American Artists. He had organized them all. Lois Cook was chairman of the Council of American Writers. It met in the drawing room of her home on the Bowery. She was the only famous member. The rest included a woman who never used capitals in her books and a man who never used commas, a youth who had written a thousand-page novel without a single letter O, and another who wrote poems that neither rhymed nor scanned a man with a beard who was sophisticated and proved it by using every unprintable four-letter word in every ten pages of his manuscript, a woman who imitated Lois Cook, except that her style was less clear. When asked for explanations, she stated that this was the way life sounded to her when broken by the prism of her subconscious. You know what a prism does to a ray of light, don't you? she said. 
There was also a fierce young man known simply as Ike the Genius, though nobody knew just what he had done, except that he talked about loving all of life. The council signed a declaration, which stated that writers were servants of the proletariat. But the statement did not sound as simple as that. It was more involved and much longer. The declaration was sent to every newspaper in the country. It was never published anywhere, except on page 32 of New Frontiers. The Council of American Artists had as chairman a cadaverous youth who painted what he saw in his nightly dreams. There was a boy who used no canvas, but did something with bird cages and metronomes, and another who discovered a new technique of painting. He blackened a sheet of paper and then painted with a rubber eraser. There was a stout middle-aged lady who drew subconsciously, claiming that she never looked at her hand and had no idea of what the hand was doing. Her hand, she said, was guided by the spirit of the departed lover whom she had never met on earth. Here they did not talk so much about the proletariat, but merely rebelled against the tyranny of reality and of the objective. A few friends pointed out to Ellsworth Toohey that he seemed guilty of inconsistency. He was so deeply opposed to individualism, they said, and here were all these writers and artists of his, and every one of them was a rabid individualist. Do you really think so? said Toohey, smiling blandly. Nobody took these counsels seriously. People talked about them because they thought it made good conversation. It was such a huge joke, they said. Certainly there was no harm in any of it. Do you really think so? said Toohey. Ellsworth Toohey was now forty-one years old. He lived in a distinguished apartment that seemed modest when compared to the size of the income he could have commanded if he wished. He liked to apply the adjective conservative to himself in one respect only, in his conservative good taste for clothes. No one had ever seen him lose his temper. His manner was immutable. It was the same in a drawing room, at a labor meeting, on a lecture platform, in the bathroom, or during sexual intercourse. Cool, self-possessed, amused, faintly patronizing. People admired his sense of humor. He was, they said, a man who could laugh at himself. I'm a dangerous person. Somebody ought to warn you against me, he said to people, in the tone of uttering the most preposterous thing in the world. Of all the many titles bestowed upon him, he preferred one. Ellsworth Toohey, the Humanitarian. Chapter 10 the Enright House was opened in June of 1929. There was no formal ceremony, but Roger Enright wanted to mark the moment for his own satisfaction. He invited a few people he liked, and he unlocked the great glass entrance door, throwing it open to the sun-filled air. Some press photographers had arrived, because the story concerned Roger Enright, and because Roger Enright did not want to have them there. He ignored them. He stood in the middle of the street looking at the building, then he walked through the lobby, stopping short without reason, and resuming his pacing. He said nothing. He frowned fiercely, as if he were about to scream with rage. His friends knew that Roger Enright was happy. The building stood on the shore of the East River, a structure wrapped as raised arms. The rock-crystal forms mounted in such eloquent steps that the building did not seem stationary, but moving upward in a continuous flow, until one realized that it was only the movement of one's glance and that one's glance was forced to move in that particular rhythm. The walls of pale gray limestone looked silver against the sky, with the clean, dulled luster of metal. 
but a metal that had become a warm living substance, carved by the most cutting of all instruments, a purposeful human will. It made the house alive in a strange personal way of its own, so that in the minds of spectators five words ran dimly, without object or clear connection, in his image and likeness. A young photographer from the banner noticed Howard Rourke standing alone across the street at the parapet of the river. He was leaning back, his hands closed over the parapet, hatless, looking up at the building. It was an accidental, unconscious moment. The young photographer glanced at Rourke's face and thought of something that had puzzled him for a long time. He had always wondered why the sensations one felt in dreams were so much more intense than anything one could experience in waking reality why the horror was so total and the ecstasy so complete, and what was that extra quality which could never be recaptured afterward, the quality of what he felt when he walked down a path through tangled green leaves in a dream, in an air full of expectation, of causeless, utter rapture. And when he awakened, he could not explain it. It had been just a path through some woods. He thought of that because he saw that extra quality for the first time in waking existence. He saw it in Rourke's face lifted to the building. The photographer was a young boy, new to his job. He did not know much about it, but he loved his work. He had been an amateur photographer since childhood. So he snapped a picture of Rourke in that one moment. Later, the art editor of the banner saw the picture and barked, What the hell's that? Howard Rourke, said the photographer. Who's Howard Rourke? The architect? Who the hell wants a picture of the architect? Well, I only thought, besides, it's crazy. What's the matter with the man? So the picture was thrown into the morgue. The Enright house rented promptly. The tenants who moved in were people who wanted to live in sane comfort and cared about nothing else. They did not discuss the value of the building. They merely liked living there. They were the sort who lead useful, active, private lives in public silence. But others talked a great deal of the Enright House, for about three weeks. They said that it was preposterous, exhibitionist, and phony. They said, My dear, imagine inviting Mrs. Moreland if you lived in a place like that, and her home is in such good taste. A few were beginning to appear who said, You know, I rather like modern architecture. There's some mighty interesting things being done that way nowadays. There's quite a school of it in Germany that's rather remarkable. But this is not like it at all. This is a freak. Ellsworth, too, he never mentioned the Enright House in his column. A reader of the banner wrote to him, Dear Mr. Tui, what do you think of this place they call the Enright House? I have a friend who is an interior decorator, and he talks a lot about it, and he says it's lousy. Architecture and such various arts being my hobby, I don't know what to think. Will you tell us in your column? Ellsworth, too, he answered in a private letter, Dear friend, there are so many important buildings and great events going on in the world today, that I cannot devote my column to trivialities. But people came to Rourke, the few he wanted. That winter he had received a commission to build the Norris House, a modest country home. In May he signed another contract for his first office building, a fifty-story skyscraper in the center of Manhattan. Anthony Cord, the owner, had come from nowhere and made a fortune in Wall Street within a few brilliant, violent years. He wanted a building of his own, and he went to Rourke. Rourke's office had grown to four rooms. His staff loved him. They did not realize it, 
and would have been shocked to apply such a term as love to their cold, unapproachable, inhuman boss. These were the words they used to describe Rourke. These were the words they had been trained to use by all the standards and conceptions of their past. Only working with him, they knew that he was none of these things, but they could not explain neither what he was nor what they felt for him. He did not smile at his employees. He did not take them out for drinks. He never inquired about their families, their love lives, or their church attendance. He responded only to the essence of a man, to his creative capacity. In this office, one had to be competent. There were no alternatives, no mitigating considerations. But if a man worked well, he needed nothing else to win his employer's benevolence. It was granted, not as a gift, but as a debt. It was granted, not as affection, but as recognition. It bred an immense feeling of self-respect within every man in that office. Oh, but that's not human, said somebody, when one of Rourke's draftsmen tried to explain this at home. Such a cold, intellectual approach. One boy, a younger sort of Peter Keating, tried to introduce the human in preference to the intellectual in Rourke's office. He did not last two weeks. Rourke made mistakes in choosing his employees occasionally, not often. Those whom he kept for a month became his friends for life. They did not call themselves friends. They did not praise him to outsiders. They did not talk about him. They knew only in a dim way that it was not loyalty to him, but to the best within themselves. Dominique remained in the city all summer. She remembered with bitter pleasure her custom to travel. It made her angry to think that she could not go could not want to go. She enjoyed the anger. It drove her to his room. On the nights which she did not spend with him, she walked through the streets of the city. She walked to the Enright house or to the Fargo store and stood looking at the building for a long time. She drove alone out of town to see the Heller house, the Sanborn house, the Gowan service station. She never spoke to him about that. Once she took the Staten Island ferry at two o'clock in the morning. She rode to the island, standing alone at the rail of an empty deck. She watched the city moving away from her. In the vast emptiness of sky and ocean, the city was only a small, jagged solid. It seemed condensed, pressed tight together, not a place of streets and separate buildings, but a single sculptured form, a form of irregular steps that rose and dropped without ordered continuity, long ascensions and sudden drops, like the graph of a stubborn struggle. But it went on mounting toward a few points, toward the triumphant masts of skyscrapers raised out of the struggle. The boat went past the Statue of Liberty, a figure in a green light with an arm upraised, like the skyscrapers behind it. She stood at the rail while the city diminished, and she felt the motion of a growing distance as a growing tightness within her. The pull of a living cord that could not be stretched too far. She stood in quiet excitement when the boat sailed back and she saw the city growing again to meet her. She stretched her arms wide. The city expanded to her elbows, to her wrists, beyond her fingertips. Then the skyscrapers rose over her head, and she was back. She came ashore. She knew where she had to go, and wanted to get there fast, but felt she must get there herself like this on her own feet. So she walked half the length of Manhattan, through long, empty, echoing streets. It was 4.30 when she knocked at his door. 
He had been asleep. She shook her head. No, she said. Go back to sleep. I just want to be here. She did not touch him. She took off her hat and shoes, huddled into an armchair and fell asleep, her arm hanging over the chair's side, her head on her arm. In the morning, he asked no questions. They fixed breakfast together, then he hurried away to his office. Before leaving, he took her in his arms and kissed her. He walked out, and she stood for a few moments, then left. They had not exchanged twenty words. There were weekends when they left the city together and drove in her car to some obscure point on the coast. They stretched out in the sun on the sand of a deserted beach. They swam in the ocean. She liked to watch his body in the water. She would remain behind and stand, the waves hitting her knees, and watch him cutting a straight line through the breakers. She liked to lie with him at the edge of the water. She would lie on her stomach a few feet away from him, facing the shore, her toes stretched to the waves. She would not touch him, but she would feel the waves coming up behind them, breaking against their bodies, and she would see the backwash running in mingled streams off her body and his. They spent the night at some country inn, taking a single room. They never spoke of the things left behind them in the city, but it was the unstated that gave meaning to the relaxed simplicity of these hours. Their eyes laughed silently at the preposterous contrast whenever they looked at each other. She tried to demonstrate her power over him. She stayed away from his house. She waited for him to come to her. He spoiled it by coming too soon by refusing her the satisfaction of knowing that he waited and struggled against his desire, by surrendering at once. She would say, Kiss my hand, Rourke. He would kneel and kiss her ankle. He defeated her by admitting her power. She could not have the gratification of enforcing it. He would lie at her feet. He would say, Of course I need you. I go insane when I see you. You can do almost anything you wish with me. Is that what you want to hear? Almost, Dominique. And the things you couldn't make me do. You could put me through hell if you demanded them, and I had to refuse you, as I would. Through utter hell, Dominique. Does that please you? Why do you want to know whether you own me? It's so simple. Of course you do. All of me that can be owned. You'll never demand anything else. But you want to know whether you could make me suffer. You could. What of it? The words did not sound like surrender, because they were not torn out of him, but admitted simply and willingly. She felt no thrill of conquest. She felt herself owned more than ever by a man who could say these things, know them to be true, and still remain controlled and controlling, as she wanted him to remain. Late in June, a man named Kent Lansing came to see Rourke. He was forty years old, he was dressed like a fashion plate, and looked like a prize-fighter. Though he was not burly, muscular, or tough, he was thin and angular. He merely made one think of a boxer, and of other things that did not fit his appearance, of a battering ram, of a tank, of a submarine torpedo. He was a member of a corporation formed for the purpose of erecting a luxurious hotel on Central Park South. There were many wealthy men involved, and the corporation was ruled by a numerous board. They had purchased their site. They had not decided on an architect. But Kent Lansing had made up his mind that it would be Rourke. I won't try to tell you how much I'd like to do it, Rourke said to him at the end of their first interview. 
but there's not a chance of my getting it. I can get along with people when they're alone. I can do nothing with them in groups. No board has ever hired me, and I don't think one ever will. Kent Lansing smiled. Have you ever known a board to do anything? What do you mean? Just that. Have you ever known a board to do anything at all? Well, they seem to exist and function. Do they? You know, there was a time when everyone thought it self-evident that the earth was flat. It would be entertaining to speculate upon the nature and causes of humanity's illusions. I'll write a book about it someday. It won't be popular. I'll have a chapter on boards of directors. You see, they don't exist. I'd like to believe you, but what's the gag? No, you wouldn't like to believe me. The causes of illusions are not pretty to discover. They're either vicious or tragic. This one is both. Mainly vicious. And it's not a gag. But we won't go into that now. All I mean is that a board of directors is one or two ambitious men and a lot of ballast. I mean that groups of men are vacuums. Great big empty nothings. They say we can't visualize a total nothing. Hell, sit at any committee meeting. The point is only who chooses to fill that nothing. It's a tough battle, the toughest. It's simple enough to fight any enemy, so long as he's there to be fought. But when he isn't... Don't look at me like that as if I were crazy. You ought to know you fought a vacuum all your life. I'm looking at you like that, because I like you. Of course you like me, as I knew I'd like you. Men are brothers, you know, and they have a great instinct for brotherhood. Except in boards, unions, corporations, and other chain gangs. But I talk too much. That's why I'm a good salesman. However, I have nothing to sell you, you know. So we'll just say that you're going to build the Aquitania, that's the name of our hotel, and we'll let it go at that. If the violence of the battles which people never hear about could be measured in material statistics, the Battle of Kent Lansing against the Board of Directors of the Aquitania Corporation would have been listed among the great carnages of history. But the things he fought were not solid enough to leave anything as substantial as corpses on the battlefield. He had to fight phenomena such as, Listen, Palmer, Lansing's talking about somebody named Rourke. How are you going to vote? Do the big boys approve of him or not? I'm not going to decide till I know who's voted for or against. Lansing says, but on the other hand, Thorpe tells me, Talbot's putting up a swank hotel on 5th up in the 60s, and he's got Francone and Keating. Harper swears by this young fellow, Gordon Prescott. Listen, Betsy says we're crazy. I don't like Rourke's face. He doesn't look cooperative. I know, I feel it. Rourke's the kind that don't fit in. He's not a regular fellow. What's a regular fellow? Oh, hell, you know very well what I mean. Regular. Thompson says that Mrs. Pritchett says that she knows for certain because Mr. Macy told her that if... Well, boys, I don't give a damn what anybody says. I make up my own mind, and I'm here to tell you that I think this Rourke is lousy. I don't like the Enright House. Why? I don't know why. I just don't like it, and that's that. Haven't I got a right to an opinion of my own? The battle lasted for weeks. Everybody had his say, except Rourke. Lansing told him, It's all right. Lay off. Don't do anything. Let me do the talking. There's nothing you can do. When facing society, the man most concerned, the man who is to do the most and contribute the most, has the least say. It's taken for granted that he has no voice, and the reasons he could offer are rejected in advance as prejudiced, since no speech is ever considered, but only the speaker. It's so much easier to pass judgment on a man than on his idea. Though how in hell one passes judgment on a man without considering the content of his brain is more than I'll ever understand. 
However, that's how it's done. You see, reasons require scales to weigh them, and scales are not made of cotton, and cotton is what the human spirit is made of. You know, the stuff that keeps no shape and offers no resistance and can be twisted forward and backward and into a pretzel. You could tell them why they should hire you so very much better than I could, but they won't listen to you, and they'll listen to me, because I'm the middleman. The shortest distance between two points is not a straight line. It's a middleman. And the more middlemen, the shorter. Such is the psychology of a pretzel. Why are you fighting for me like that? Rourke asked. Why are you a good architect? Because you have certain standards of what is good, and they're your own, and you stand by them. I want a good hotel, and I have certain standards of what is good, and they're my own. And you're the one who can give me what I want. And when I fight for you, I'm doing, on my side of it, just what you're doing when you design a building. Do you think integrity is the monopoly of the artist? And what, incidentally, do you think integrity is? The ability not to pick a watch out of your neighbor's pocket? No, it's not as easy as that. If that were all, I'd say 95% of humanity were honest, upright men. Only, as you can see, they aren't. Integrity is the ability to stand by an idea. That presupposes the ability to think. Thinking is something one doesn't borrow or pawn. And yet, if I were asked to choose a symbol for humanity as we know it, I wouldn't choose a cross, nor an eagle, nor a lion, an unicorn. I'd choose three gilded balls. And as Rourke looked at him, he added, Don't worry. They're all against me. But I have one advantage. They don't know what they want. I do. At the end of July, Rourke signed a contract to build the Aquitania. Ellsworth Toohey sat in his office looking at a newspaper spread out on his desk at the item announcing the Aquitania contract. He smoked, holding the cigarette propped in the corner of his mouth, supported by two straight fingers. One finger tapped against the cigarette slowly, rhythmically, for a long time. He heard the sound of his door thrown open, and he glanced up to see Dominique standing there, leaning against the door jamb, her arms crossed on her chest. Her face looked interested, nothing more but it was alarming to see an expression of actual interest on her face. "'My dear,' he said, rising, "'this is the first time you've taken the trouble to enter my office "'in the four years that we've worked in the same building. "'This is really an occasion.' "'She said nothing, but smiled gently, "'which was still more alarming. "'He added, his voice pleasant, "'My little speech, of course, was the equivalent of a question.' Or don't we understand each other any longer? I suppose we don't. If you find it necessary to ask what brought me here. But you know it, Ellsworth, you know it. There it is on your desk. She walked to the desk and flipped a corner of the newspaper. She laughed. Do you wish you had it hidden somewhere? Of course you didn't expect me to come. Not that it makes any difference. But I'd just like to see you being obvious for once. Right on your desk, like that. Open at the real estate page, too. You sound as if that little piece of news had made you happy. It did, Ellsworth. It does. I thought you had worked hard to prevent that contract. I had. If you think this is an act you're putting on right now, Dominique, you're fooling yourself. This isn't an act. No, Ellsworth, this isn't. You're happy that Rourke got it? I'm so happy I could sleep with this Kent Lansing, whoever he is, if I ever met him and if he asked me. Then the pact is off. By no means. I shall try to stop any job that comes his way. I shall continue trying. 
It's not going to be so easy as it was, though. The Enright House, the Cord Building, and this. Not so easy for me, and for you. He's beating you, Ellsworth. Ellsworth, what if we were wrong about the world, you and I? You've always been, my dear. Do forgive me. I should have known better than to be astonished. It would make you happy, of course, that he got it. I don't even mind admitting that it doesn't make me happy at all. There, you see. Now your visit to my office has been a complete success. So we shall just write off the Aquitania as a major defeat, forget all about it, and continue as we were. Certainly, Ellsworth. Just as we were, I'm cinching a beautiful new hospital for Peter Keating at a dinner party tonight. Ellsworth, too, he went home and spent the evening thinking about Hopton Stoddard. Hopton Stoddard was a little man worth twenty million dollars. Three inheritances had contributed to that sum, and seventy-two years of a busy life devoted to the purpose of making money. Hopton Stoddard had a genius for investment. He invested in everything. Houses of ill fame, Broadway spectacles on the grand scale, preferably of a religious nature, factories, farm mortgages, and contraceptives. He was small and bent. His face was not disfigured. People merely thought it was because it had a single expression. He smiled. His little mouth was shaped like a V in eternal good cheer. His eyebrows were tiny Vs inverted over round blue eyes. His hair, rich, white, and waved, looked like a wig, but was real. Toohey had known Hopton Stoddard for many years and exercised a strong influence upon him. Hopton Stoddard had never married, had no relatives and no friends. He distrusted people, believing that they were always after his money. But he felt a tremendous respect for Ellsworth Toohey, because Toohey represented the exact opposite of his own life. Toohey had no concern whatever for worldly wealth. By the mere fact of this contrast, he considered Toohey the personification of virtue. What this estimate implied in regard to his own life never quite occurred to him. He was not easy in his mind about his life, and the uneasiness grew with the years, with the certainty of an approaching end. He found relief in religion, in the form of a bribe. He experimented with several different creeds, attended services, donated large sums, and switched to another faith. As the years passed, the tempo of his quest accelerated. It had the tone of panic. Tui's indifference to religion was the only flaw that disturbed him in the person of his friend and mentor. But everything Tui preached seemed in line with God's law. Charity, sacrifice, help to the poor. Hopton Stoddard felt safe whenever he followed Tui's advice. He donated handsomely to the institutions recommended by Tui without much prompting. In matters of the spirit, he regarded Tui upon earth, somewhat as he expected to regard God in heaven. But this summer, Tui met defeat with Hopton Stoddard for the first time. Hopton Stoddard decided to realize a dream which he had been planning slyly and cautiously, like all his other investments, for several years. He decided to build a temple. It was not to be the temple of any particular creed, but an interdenominational, non-sectarian monument to religion, a cathedral of faith open to all. Hopton Stoddard wanted to play safe. He felt crushed when Ellsworth Toohey advised him against the project. Toohey wanted a building to house a new home for subnormal children. He had an organization set up, a distinguished committee of sponsors, an endowment for operating expenses, but no building and no funds to erect one. 
If Hopton Stoddard wished a worthy memorial to his name, a grand climax of his generosity, to what nobler purpose could he dedicate his money than to the Hopton Stoddard Home for Subnormal Children, Toohey pointed out to him emphatically, to the poor little blighted ones for whom nobody cared. But Hopton Stoddard could not be aroused to any enthusiasm for a home, nor for any mundane institution. It had to be the Hopton Stoddard Temple of the Human Spirit. He could offer no arguments against Toohey's brilliant array. He could say nothing except, No Ellsworth, no, it's not right, not right. The matter was left unsettled. Hopton Stoddard would not budge, but Toohey's disapproval made him uncomfortable, and he postponed his decision from day to day. He knew only that he would have to decide by the end of summer, because in the fall he was to depart on a long journey, a world tour of the holy shrines of all faiths, from Lourdes to Jerusalem to Mecca to Benares. A few days after the announcement of the Aquitania contract, Tui came to see Hopton Stoddard in the evening, in the privacy of Stoddard's vast, overstuffed apartment on Riverside Drive. Hopton, he said cheerfully, I was wrong. You were right about that temple. No, said Hopton Stoddard, aghast. Yes, said Tui. You were right. Nothing else would be quite fitting. You must build a temple. A temple of the human spirit. Hopton Stoddard swallowed, and his blue eyes became moist. He felt that he must have progressed far upon the path of righteousness if he had been able to teach a point of virtue to his teacher. After that, nothing else mattered. He sat like a meek, wrinkled baby, listening to Ellsworth Toohey, nodding, agreeing to everything. It's an ambitious undertaking, Hopton, and if you do it, you must do it right. It's a little presumptuous, you know, offering a present to God, and unless you do it in the best way possible, it will be offensive, not reverent. Yes, of course, it must be right, it must be right, it must be the best. You'll help me, won't you, Ellsworth? You know all about buildings and art and everything. It must be right. I'll be glad to help you, if you really want me to. If I want you to, what do you mean, if I want... Goodness gracious, what would I do without you? I don't know anything about... about anything like that, and it must be right. If you want it right. Will you do exactly as I say? Yes, 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 of course. First of all, the architect. That's very important. Yes, indeed. You don't want one of those satin-lined commercial boys with the dollar sign all over them? You want a man who believes in his work as... as you believe in God. That's right. That's absolutely right. You must take the one I name. Certainly. Who's that? Howard Rourke. Huh? Hopton Stoddard looked blank. Who's he? He's the man who's going to build the Temple of the Human Spirit. Is he any good? Ellsworth Toohey turned and looked straight into his eyes. By my immortal soul, Hopton, he said slowly, he's the best there is. Oh! But he's difficult to get. He doesn't work except on certain conditions. You must observe them scrupulously. You must give him complete freedom. Tell him what you want and how much you want to spend, and leave the rest up to him. Let him design it and build it as he wishes. He won't work otherwise. Just tell him frankly that you know nothing about architecture, and that you chose him because you felt he was the only one who could be trusted to do it right without advice or interference. Okay. If you vouch for him. I vouch for him. That's fine. And I don't care how much it costs me. But you must be careful about approaching him. 
I think he will refuse to do it at first. He will tell you that he doesn't believe in God. What? Don't believe him. He's a profoundly religious man, in his own way. You can see that in his buildings. Oh. But he doesn't belong to any established church. So you won't appear partial. You won't offend anyone. That's good. Now, when you deal in matters of faith, you must be the first one to have faith. Is that right? That's right. Don't wait to see his drawings. They will take some time, and you mustn't delay your trip. Just hire him. Don't sign a contract. It's not necessary. Make arrangements for your bank to take care of the financial end and let him do the rest. You don't have to pay him his fee until you return. In a year or so, when you come back after seeing all those great temples, you'll have a better one of your own waiting there for you. That's just what I wanted. But you must think of the proper unveiling to the public, the proper dedication, the right publicity. Of course. That is, publicity. Certainly. Do you know of any great event that's not accompanied by a good publicity campaign? One that isn't can't be much. If you skimp on that, it will be downright disrespectful. That's true. Now, if you want the proper publicity, you must plan it carefully, well in advance. What you want when you unveil it is one grand fanfare, like an opera overture, like a blast on Gabriel's horn. That's beautiful the way you put it. Well, to do that, you mustn't allow a lot of newspaper punks to dissipate your effect by dribbling out premature stories. Don't release the drawings of the temple. Keep them secret. Tell Rourke that you want them kept secret. He won't object to that. Have the contractor put up a solid fence all around the site while it's being built. No one's to know what it looks like until you come back and preside at the unveiling in person. Then pictures in every damn paper in the country. Ellsworth. I beg your pardon. The idea's right. That's how we put over the legend of the Virgin ten years ago. That was with a cast of ninety-seven. Yes, but in the meantime, keep the public interested. Get yourself a good press agent and tell him how you want it handled. I'll give you the name of an excellent one. See to it that there's something about the mysterious Stoddard Temple in the papers every other week or so. Keep 'em guessing. Keep 'em waiting. They'll be good and ready when the time comes. Right. But above all, don't let Rourke know that I recommended him. Don't breathe a word to anyone about my having anything to do with it. Not to a soul. Swear it. But why? Because I have too many friends who are architects, and it's such an important commission, and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Yes, that's true. Swear it. Oh, Ellsworth. Swear it, by the salvation of your soul. I swear it, by that. All right. Now you've never dealt with architects, and he's an unusual kind of architect, and you don't want to muff it. So I'll tell you exactly what you're to say to him. On the following day, Tui walked into Dominique's office. He stood at her desk, smiled, and said, his voice unsmiling, "Do you remember Hopton Stoddard and that temple of all faith that he's been talking about for six years?" Vaguely, he's going to build it. Is he? He's giving the job to Howard Rourke. Not really. Really. Well, of all the incredible, not Hopton, Hopton. Oh, all right. I'll go to work on him. No, you'll lay off. I told him to give it to Rourke. She sat still, exactly as the words caught her. 
the amusement gone from her face. He added, I wanted you to know that I did it, so there won't be any tactical contradictions. No one else knows it or is to know it. I trust you to remember that. She asked, her lips moving tightly. What are you after? He smiled. He said, I'm going to make him famous. Rourke sat in Hopton Stoddard's office and listened, stupefied. Hopton Stoddard spoke slowly. It sounded earnest and impressive, but was due to the fact that he had memorized his speeches almost verbatim. His baby eyes looked at Rourke with an ingratiating plea. For once, Rourke almost forgot architecture and placed the human element first. He wanted to get up and get out of the office. He could not stand the man. But the words he heard held him. The words did not match the man's face or voice. So you see, Mr. Rourke, though it is to be a religious edifice, it is also more than that. You notice that we call it the temple of the human spirit. We want to capture, in stone, as others capture in music, not some narrow creed, but the essence of all religion. And what is the essence of religion? The great aspiration of the human spirit toward the highest, the noblest, the best. The human spirit as the creator and the conqueror of the ideal, the great life-giving force of the universe, the heroic human spirit. That is your assignment, Mr. Rourke. Rourke rubbed the back of his hand against his eyes helplessly. It was not possible. It simply was not possible. That could not be what the man wanted. Not that man. It seemed horrible to hear him say that. Mr. Stoddard, I'm afraid you've made a mistake, he said, his voice slow and tired. I don't think I'm the man you want. I don't think it would be right for me to undertake it. I don't believe in God. He was astonished to see Hopton Stoddard's expression of delight and triumph. Hopton Stoddard glowed in appreciation, in appreciation of the clairvoyant wisdom of Ellsworth Toohey, who was always right. He drew himself up with new confidence, and he said firmly, for the first time in the tone of an old man addressing a youth, wise and gently patronizing, That doesn't matter. You're a profoundly religious man, Mr. Rourke, in your own way. I can see that in your buildings. He wondered why Rourke stared at him like that, without moving, for such a long time. That's true, said Rourke. It was almost a whisper. That he should learn something about himself, about his buildings, from this man who had seen it and known it before he knew it. That this man should say it with that air of tolerant confidence, implying full understanding, removed Rourke's doubts. He told himself that he did not really understand people, that an impression could be deceptive, that Hopton Stoddard would be far on another continent anyway that nothing mattered in the face of such an assignment, that nothing could matter when a human voice, even Hopton Stoddard's, was going on, saying, I wish to call it God. You may choose any other name, but what I want in that building is your spirit. Your spirit, Mr. Rourke. Give me the best of that, and you will have done your job, as I shall have done mine. Do not worry about the meaning I wish conveyed. Let it be your spirit in the shape of a building and it will have that meaning, whether you know it or not. And so, 
Rourke agreed to build the Stoddard Temple of the Human Spirit. Chapter 11 In December, the Cosmoslotnik building was opened with great ceremony. There were celebrities, flower horseshoes, newsreel cameras, revolving searchlights, and three hours of speeches, all alike. I should be happy, Peter Keating told himself, and wasn't. He watched from a window the solid spread of faces filling Broadway from curb to curb. He tried to talk himself into joy. He felt nothing. He had to admit that he was bored. But he smiled and shook hands and let himself be photographed. The Cosmo Slotnik building rose ponderously over the street, like a big white bromide. After the ceremonies, Ellsworth Toohey took Keating away to the retreat of a pale orchid booth in a quiet, expensive restaurant. Many brilliant parties were being given in honor of the opening, but Keating grasped Toohey's offer and declined all the other invitations. Toohey watched him as he seized his drink and slumped in his seat. Wasn't it grand, said Toohey. That, Peter, is the climax of what you can expect from life. He lifted his glass delicately. Here's to the hope that you shall have many triumphs such as this, such as tonight. Thanks, said Keating, and reached for his glass hastily without looking and lifted it, to find it empty. Don't you feel proud, Peter? Yes, yes, of course. That's good. That's how I like to see you. You looked extremely handsome tonight. You'll be splendid in those newsreels. A flicker of interest snapped in Keating's eyes. Well, I sure hope so. It's too bad you're not married, Peter. A wife would have been most decorative tonight. Goes well with the public. With the movie audiences, too. Katie doesn't photograph well. Oh, that's right, you're engaged to Katie. So stupid of me. I keep forgetting it. No, Katie doesn't photograph well at all. Also, for the life of me, I can't imagine Katie being very effective at a social function. There are a great many nice adjectives one could use about Katie, but poised and distinguished are not among them. You must forgive me, Peter. I let my imagination run away with me. Dealing with art as much as I do, I'm inclined to see things purely from the viewpoint of artistic fitness, and looking at you tonight I couldn't help thinking of the woman who would have made such a perfect picture by your side. Who? Oh, don't pay attention to me. It's only an aesthetic fancy. Life is never as perfect as that. People have too much to envy you for. You couldn't add that to your other achievements. Who? Drop it, Peter. You can't get her. Nobody can get her. You're good, but you're not good enough for that. Who? Dominique Francone, of course. Keating sat up straight, and Tui saw wariness in his eyes. Rebellion. Actual hostility. Toohey held his glance calmly. It was Keating who gave in. He slumped again, and he said, pleading, Oh, God, Ellsworth, I don't love her. I never thought you did. But I do keep forgetting the exaggerated importance which the average man attaches to love. Sexual love. I'm not an average man, said Keating wearily. It was an automatic protest, without fire. Sit up, Peter. You don't look like a hero slumped that way. Keating jerked himself up, anxious and angry. He said, I've always felt that you wanted me to marry Dominique. Why? What's it to you? You've answered your own question, Peter. What could it possibly be to me? But we were speaking of love. 
Sexual love, Peter, is a profoundly selfish emotion, and selfish emotions are not the ones that lead to happiness, are they? Take tonight, for instance. That was an evening to swell an egotist's heart. Were you happy, Peter? Don't bother, my dear. No answer is required. The point I wish to make is only that one must mistrust one's most personal impulses. What one desires is actually of so little importance. One can't expect to find happiness until one realizes this completely. Think of tonight for a moment. You, my dear Peter, were the least important person there, which is as it should be. It is not the doer that counts, but those for whom things are done. But you were not able to accept that, and so you didn't feel the great elation that should have been yours. That's true, whispered Keating. He would not have admitted it to anyone else. You missed the beautiful pride of utter selflessness. Only when you learn to deny your ego completely, only when you learn to be amused by such piddling sentimentalities as your little sex urges, only then will you achieve the greatness which I have always expected of you. You... you believe that about me, Ellsworth? You really do? I wouldn't be sitting here if I didn't. But to come back to love. Personal love, Peter, is a great evil, as everything personal, and it always leads to misery. Don't you see why? Personal love is an act of discrimination, of preference. It is an act of injustice to every human being on earth whom you rob of the affection arbitrarily granted to one. You must love all men equally. But you cannot achieve so noble an emotion if you don't kill your selfish little choices. They are vicious and futile, since they contradict the first cosmic law, the basic equality of all men. You mean, said Keating, suddenly interested, that in a, in a philosophical way, deep down, I mean, we're all equal? All of us? Of course, said Tui. Keating wondered why the thought was so warmly pleasant to him. He did not mind that this made him the equal of every pickpocket in the crowd gathered to celebrate his building tonight. It occurred to him dimly, and left him undisturbed even though it contradicted the passionate quest for superiority that had driven him all his life. The contradiction did not matter. He was not thinking of tonight, nor of the crowd. He was thinking of a man who had not been there tonight. You know, Ellsworth, he said, leaning forward, happy in an uneasy kind of way, I'm... I'd rather talk to you than do anything else, anything at all. I had so many places to go tonight, and I'm so much happier just sitting here with you. Sometimes I wonder how I'd ever go on without you. That, said Tui, is as it should be. Or else what are friends for? That winter the annual costume arts ball was an event of greater brilliance and originality than usual. Athelstan Beasley, the leading spirit of its organization, had had what he called a stroke of genius. All the architects were invited to come dressed as their best buildings. It was a huge success. Peter Keating was the star of the evening. He looked wonderful as the Cosmoslotnik building. An exact papier-mâché replica of his famous structure covered him from head to knees. One could not see his face, but his bright eyes peered from behind the windows of the top floor, and the crowning pyramid of the roof rose over his head. The colonnade hit him somewhere about the diaphragm, and he wagged a finger through the portals of the great entrance door. His legs were free to move with his usual elegance, in faultless dress trousers and patent leather pumps. 
Guy Francone was very impressive as the Frank National Bank building, although the structure looked a little squatter than in the original, in order to allow for Francone's stomach. The Hadrian torch over his head had a real electric bulb, lit by a miniature battery. Ralston Holcomb was magnificent as a state capital, and Gordon L. Prescott was very masculine as a grain elevator. Eugene Pettingill waddled about on his skinny ancient legs, small and bent, an imposing Park Avenue hotel, with horn-rimmed spectacles peering from under the majestic tower. Two wits engaged in a duel, butting each other in the belly with famous spires, great landmarks of the city that greet the ships approaching from across the ocean. Everybody had lots of fun. Many of the architects, Athelstan Beasley in particular, commented resentfully on Howard Rourke, who had been invited and did not come. They had expected to see him dressed as the Enright House. Dominique stopped in the hall and stood looking at the door, at the inscription, Howard Rourke, Architect. She had never seen his office. She had fought against coming here for a long time. But she had to see the place where he worked. The secretary in the reception room was startled when Dominique gave her name, but announced the visitor to Rourke. Go right in, Miss Francone, she said. Rourke smiled when she entered his office, a faint smile without surprise. I knew you'd come here some day, he said. Want me to show you the place? What's that? she asked. His hands were smeared with clay. On a long table, among a litter of unfinished sketches, stood the clay model of a building, a rough study of angles and terraces. The Aquitania? she asked. He nodded. Do you always do that? No, not always. Sometimes. There's a hard problem here. I like to play with it for a while. It will probably be my favorite building. It's so difficult. Go ahead. I want to watch you doing that. Do you mind? Not at all. In a moment he had forgotten her presence. She sat in a corner and watched his hands. She saw the molding walls. She saw them smash a part of the structure and begin again, slowly, patiently, with a strange certainty, even in his hesitation. She saw the palm of his hand smooth a long, straight plane. She saw an angle jerked across space in the motion of his hand before she saw it in clay. She rose and walked to the window. The buildings of the city far below looked no bigger than the model on his table. It seemed to her that she could see his hands shaping the setbacks, the corners, the roofs of all the structures below, smashing and molding again. Her hand moved absently, following the form of a distant building in rising steps, feeling a physical sense of possession, feeling it for him. She turned back to the table. A strand of hair hung down over his face, bent attentively to the model. He was not looking at her. He was looking at the shape under his fingers. It was almost as if she were watching his hands moving over the body of another woman. She leaned against the wall, weak with the feeling of violent physical pleasure. At the beginning of January, while the first steel columns rose from the excavations that were to become the Cord Building and the Aquitania Hotel, Rourke worked on the drawings for the temple. When the first sketches were finished, he said to his secretary, Get me Stephen Mallory. Mallory, Mr. Rourke? Who? Oh, yes, the shooting sculptor. The what? He took a shot at Ellsworth, too, he didn't he? Did he? Yes, that's right. Is that the one you want, Mr. Rourke? That's the one. 
For two days the secretary telephoned art dealers, galleries, architects, newspapers. No one could tell her what had become of Stephen Mallory or where he could be found. On the third day she reported to Rourke. I found an address in the village, which I'm told might be his. There's no telephone. Rourke dictated a letter asking Mallory to telephone his office. The letter was not returned, but a week passed without answer. Then Stephen Mallory telephoned. Hello, said Rourke when the secretary switched the call to him. Stephen Mallory speaking, said a young, hard voice, in a way that left an impatient, belligerent silence after the words. I should like to see you, Mr. Mallory. Can we make an appointment for you to come to my office? What do you want to see me about? About a commission, of course. I want you to do some work for a building of mine. There was a long silence. All right, said Mallory. His voice sounded dead. He added, Which building? The Stoddard Temple. You may have heard. Yeah, I heard. You're doing it. Who hasn't heard? Will you pay me as much as you're paying your press agent? I'm not paying the press agent. I'll pay you whatever you wish to ask. You know, that can't be much. What time would it be convenient for you to come here? Oh, hell, you name it. You know I'm not busy. Two o'clock tomorrow afternoon? All right. He added. I don't like your voice. Rourke laughed. I like yours. Cut it out and be here tomorrow at two. Okay. Mallory hung up. Rourke dropped the receiver, grinning. But the grin vanished suddenly, and he sat looking at the telephone, his face grave. Mallory did not keep the appointment. Three days passed without a word from him. Then Rourke went to find him in person. The rooming house where Mallory lived was a dilapidated brownstone in an unlighted street that smelled of a fish market. There was a laundry and a cobbler on the ground floor at either side of a narrow entrance. A slatternly landlady said, Mallory, fifth floor rear, and shuffled away indifferently. Rourke climbed sagging wooden stairs lighted by bulbs stuck in a web of pipes. He knocked at a grimy door. The door opened. A gaunt young man stood on the threshold. He had disheveled hair, a strong mouth with a square lower lip, and the most expressive eyes that Rourke had ever seen. What do you want? he snapped. Mr. Mallory? Yeah. I'm Howard Rourke. Mallory laughed, leaning against the door jamb, one arm stretched across the opening with no intention of stepping aside. He was obviously drunk. Well, well, he said. In person. May I come in? What for? Rourke sat down on the stair banister. Why didn't you keep your appointment? Oh, the appointment? Oh, yes. Well, I'll tell you, Mallory said gravely. It was like this. I really intended to keep it, I really did, and started out for your office, but on my way there I passed a movie theater that was showing two heads on a pillow, so I went in. I just had to see two heads on a pillow. He grinned, sagging against his stretched arm. You'd better let me come in, said Rourke quietly. Oh, what the hell, come in. The room was a narrow hole. There was an unmade bed in a corner, a litter of newspapers and old clothes, a gas ring, a framed landscape from the five and ten, representing some sort of sick brown meadows with sheep. There were no drawings or figures, no hints of the occupant's profession. Rourke pushed some books and a skillet off the only chair and sat down. 
Mallory stood before him, grinning, swaying a little. You're doing it all wrong, said Mallory. That's not the way it's done. You must be pretty hard up to come running after a sculptor. The way it's done is like this. You make me come to your office, and the first time I come you mustn't be there. The second time you must keep me waiting for an hour and a half. Then come out into the reception room and shake hands and ask me whether I know the Wilsons of Podunk and say how nice that we have mutual friends. But you're in an awful hurry today, and you'll call me up for lunch soon, and then we'll talk business. Then you keep this up for two months, then you give me the commission. Then you tell me that I'm no good and wasn't any good in the first place, and you throw the thing into the ash can. Then you hire Valerian Bronson, and he does the job. That's the way it's done. Only not this time. But his eyes were studying Rourke intently, and his eyes had the certainty of a professional. As he spoke, his voice kept losing its swaggering gaiety, and it slipped to a dead flatness on the last sentences. No, said Rourke. Not this time. The boy stood looking at him silently. You're Howard Rourke? he asked. I like your buildings. That's why I didn't want to meet you, so I wouldn't have to be sick every time I looked at them. I wanted to go on thinking that they had been done by somebody who matched them. What if I do? That doesn't happen. But he sat down on the edge of the crumpled bed and slumped forward his glance like a sensitive scale weighing Rourke's features, impertinent in its open action of appraisal. Listen, said Rourke, speaking clearly and very carefully. I want you to do a statue for the Stoddard Temple. Give me a piece of paper and I'll write you a contract right now, stating that I will owe you a million dollars damages if I hire another sculptor, or if your work is not used. You can speak normal. I'm not drunk. Not all the way. I understand. Well? Why did you pick me? Because you're a good sculptor. That's not true. That you're good? No, that it's your reason. Who asked you to hire me? Nobody. Some woman I laid? I don't know any women you laid. Stuck on your building budget? No, the budget's unlimited. Feel sorry for me? No, why should I? Want to get publicity out of that shooting Tui business? Good God, no. Well, what then? Why do you fish for all that nonsense, instead of the simplest reason? Which? That I like your work? Sure, that's what they all say. That's what we're all supposed to say, and to believe. Imagine what would happen if somebody blew the lid off that one. So, all right, you like my work. What's the real reason? I like your work. Mallory spoke earnestly his voice sober. You mean you saw the things I've done and you liked them? You, yourself, alone, without anyone telling you that you should like them or why you should like them. And you decided that you wanted me for that reason, only for that reason, without knowing anything about me or giving a damn, only because of the things I've done and, and what you saw in them. Only because of that you decided to hire me, and you went to the bother of finding me and coming here and being insulted, only because you saw, and what you saw made me important to you, made you want me. Is that what you mean? Just that, said Rourke. The things that pulled Mallory's eyes wide were frightening to see. Then he shook his head and said very simply, in the tone of soothing himself, No. He leaned forward. His voice sounded dead and pleading. 
Listen, Mr. Rourke, I won't be mad at you. I just want to know. All right, I see that you're set on having me work for you, and you know you can get me for anything you say. You don't have to sign any million-dollar contract. Look at this room. You know you've got me. So why shouldn't you tell me the truth? It won't make any difference to you. And it's very important to me. What's very important to you? Not to... Not to... Look, I didn't think anybody would ever want me again. But you do. All right, I'll go through it again. Only I don't want to think again that I'm working for somebody who... who likes my work. That I couldn't go through anymore. I'll feel better if you tell me. I'll... I'll feel calmer. Why should you put on an act for me? I'm nothing. I won't think less of you, if that's what you're afraid of. Don't you see, it's much more decent to tell me the truth. Then it will be simple and honest. I'll respect you more. Really, I will. What's the matter with you, kid? What have they done to you? Why do you want to say things like that? Because, Mallory roared suddenly, and then his voice broke and his head dropped, and he finished in a flat whisper. Because I've spent two years, his hand circled limply, indicating the room. That's how I've spent them, trying to get used to the fact that what you're trying to tell me doesn't exist. Rourke walked over to him, lifted his chin, knocking it upward, and said, You're a goddamn fool. You have no right to care what I think of your work, what I am or why I'm here. You're too good for that. But if you want to know, I think you're the best sculptor we've got. I think it because your figures are not what men are, but what men could be and should be. Because you've gone beyond the probable and made us see what is possible, but possible only through you. Because your figures are more devoid of contempt for humanity than any work I've ever seen. Because you have a magnificent respect for the human being. Because your figures are the heroic in man. And so I didn't come here to do you a favor or because I felt sorry for you or because you need a job pretty badly. I came for a simple, selfish reason. The same reason that makes a man choose the cleanest food he can find. It's a law of survival, isn't it? To seek the best. I didn't come for your sake. I came for mine. Mallory jerked himself away from him and dropped face down on the bed, his two arms stretched out, one on each side of his head, hands closed into two fists. The thin trembling of the shirt-cloth on his back showed that he was sobbing. The shirt-cloth and the fists that twisted slowly, digging into the pillow. Rourke knew that he was looking at a man who had never cried before. He sat down on the side of the bed and could not take his eyes off the twisting wrists, even though the sight was hard to bear. After a while, Mallory sat up. He looked at Rourke and saw the calmest, kindest face, a face without a hint of pity. It did not look like the countenance of men who watch the agony of another with a secret pleasure, uplifted by the sight of a beggar who needs their compassion. It did not bear the cast of the hungry soul that feeds upon another's humiliation. Rourke's face seemed tired, drawn at the temples, as if he had just taken a beating. But his eyes were serene, and they looked at Mallory quietly, a hard, clean glance of understanding. And respect. Lie down now said Rourke. Lie still for a while. How did they ever let you survive? Lie down, rest. We'll talk afterward. Mallory got up. Rourke took him by the shoulders, forced him down, lifted his legs off the floor, lowered his head on the pillow. The boy did not resist. Stepping back, Rourke brushed against a table loaded with junk. 
something clattered to the floor. Mallory jerked forward, trying to reach it first. Rourke pushed his arm aside and picked up the object. It was a small plaster plaque, the kind sold in cheap gift shops. It represented a baby sprawled on its stomach, dimpled rear forward, peeking coyly over its shoulder. A few lines, the structure of a few muscles, showed a magnificent talent that could not be hidden, that broke fiercely through the rest. The rest was a deliberate attempt to be obvious, vulgar, and trite, a clumsy effort, unconvincing and tortured. It was an object that belonged in a chamber of horrors. Mallory saw Rourke's hand begin to shake. Then Rourke's arm went back and up over his head, slowly, as if gathering the weight of air in the crook of his elbow. It was only a flash, but it seemed to last for minutes. The arm stood lifted and still. Then it slashed forward, the plaque shot across the room and burst to pieces against the wall. It was the only time anyone had ever seen Rourke murderously angry. Rourke? Yes. Rourke, I wish I'd met you before you had a job to give me. He spoke without expression, his head lying back on the pillow, his eyes closed. Said that there would be no other reason mixed in. Because you see, I'm very grateful to you. Not for giving me a job. Not for coming here. Not for anything that you'll ever do for me. Just for what you are. Then he lay without moving, straight and limp, like a man long past the stage of suffering. Rourke stood at the window, looking at the wretched room and at the boy on the bed. He wondered why he felt as if he were waiting. He was waiting for an explosion over their heads. It seemed senseless. Then he understood. He thought, this is how men feel, trapped in a shell hole. This room is not an accident of poverty. It's the footprint of a war. It's the devastation torn by explosives more vicious than any stored in the arsenals of the world. A war against... The enemy had no name and no face. But this boy was a comrade in arms, hurt in battle. And Rourke stood over him, feeling a strange new thing. A desire to lift him in his arms and carry him to safety. Only the hell and the safety had no known designations. He kept thinking of Kent Lansing, trying to remember something Kent Lansing had said. Then Mallory opened his eyes and lifted himself up on one elbow. Rourke pulled the chair over to the bed and sat down. Now, he said, talk. Talk about the things you really once said. Don't tell me about your family, your childhood, your friends, or your feelings. Tell me about the things you think. Mallory looked at him incredulously and whispered, How did you know that? Rourke smiled and said nothing. How did you know what's been killing me, slowly, for years, driving me to hate people when I don't want to hate? Have you felt it too? Have you seen how your best friends love everything about you, except the things that count? And your most important is nothing to them, nothing, not even a sound they can recognize. You mean you want to hear? You want to know what I do and why I do it? You want to know what I think? It's not boring to you? It's important? Go ahead, said Rourke. Then he sat for hours, listening, while Mallory spoke of his work, of the thoughts behind his work, of the thoughts that shaped his life, spoke gluttonously, like a drowning man flung out to shore, getting drunk on huge, clean snatches of air.
Mallory came to Rourke's office on the following morning, and Rourke showed him the sketches of the temple. When he stood at a drafting table with a problem to consider, Mallory changed. There was no uncertainty in him, no remembrance of pain. The gesture of his hand taking the drawing was sharp and sure, like that of a soldier on duty. The gesture said that nothing ever done to him could alter the function of the thing within him that was now called into action. He had an unyielding, impersonal confidence. He faced Rourke as an equal. He studied the drawings for a long time, then raised his head. Everything about his face was controlled, except his eyes. Like it? Rourke asked. Don't use stupid words. He held one of the drawings, walked to the window, stood looking from the sketch to the street to Rourke's face, and back again. It doesn't seem possible, he said. Not this and that. He waved the sketch at the street. There was a pool room on the corner of the street below, a rooming house with a Corinthian portico, a billboard advertising a Broadway musical, a line of pink-gray underwear fluttering on a roof. Not in the same city, not on the same earth, said Mallory. But you made it happen. It's possible. I'll never be afraid again. Of what? Mallory put the sketch down on the table cautiously. He answered, You said something yesterday about a first law, a law demanding that man seek the best. It was funny. The unrecognized genius, that's an old story. Have you ever thought of a much worse one? The genius recognized too well? That a great many men are poor fools who can't see the best, that's nothing. One can't get angry at that. But do you understand about the men who see it and don't want it? No. No, you wouldn't. I spent all night thinking about you. I didn't sleep at all. Do you know what your secret is? It's your terrible innocence. Rourke laughed aloud, looking at the boyish face. No, said Mallory. It's not funny. I know what I'm talking about, and you don't. You can't know. It's because of that absolute health of yours. You're so healthy that you can't conceive of disease. You know of it, but you don't really believe it. I do. I'm wiser than you are about some things because I'm weaker. I understand the other side. That's what it did to me. What you saw yesterday. That's over. Probably, but not quite. I'm not afraid anymore. But I know that the terror exists. I know the kind of terror it is. You can't conceive of that kind. Listen, what's the most horrible experience you can imagine? To me, it's being left unarmed in a sealed cell with a drooling beast of prey or a maniac who's had some disease that's eaten his brain out. You'd have nothing but your voice, your voice and your thought. You'd scream to that creature why it should not touch you. You'd have the most eloquent words, the unanswerable words. You'd become the vessel of the absolute truth and you'd see living eyes watching you and you'd know that the thing can't hear you, that it can't be reached, not reached, not in any way, yet it's breathing and moving there before you with a purpose of its own. That's horror. Well, that's what's hanging over the world, prowling somewhere through mankind, that same thing, something closed, mindless, utterly wanton, but something with an aim and a cunning of its own. I don't think I'm a coward, but I'm afraid of it. And that's all I know, only that it exists. I don't know its purposes. I don't know its nature. The principle behind the dean, said Rourke. What? It's something I wonder about once in a while. 
Mallory, why did you try to shoot Ellsworth Tui? He saw the boy's eyes, and he added, You don't have to tell me if you don't like to talk about it. I don't like to talk about it, said Mallory, his voice tight. But it was the right question to ask. Sit down, said Rourke. We'll talk about your commission. Then Mallory listened attentively, while Rourke spoke of the building and of what he wanted from the sculptor. He concluded, Just one figure. It will stand here. He pointed to a sketch. The place is built around it. The statue of a naked woman. If you understand the building, you understand what the figure must be. The human spirit, the heroic in 